With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode 134 of Love That Album Podcast. My name is Morris Bishtinsky. Thank you so much for joining us. We're part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. So what's the purpose of this podcast if you're a first-time listener? Well, I would hope that the name pretty much says it all, but just let me explain. We talk about albums that we love. Life is too short to talk about shitty albums. I've done a couple in the past that I didn't like and was not a pleasant experience. So I pretty much try to come up with records that I really dig and hope that you will too. We don't do the track-by-track thing. We just talk about thematic elements, great musicianship, and then refer to specific songs that refer to those concepts. I said we because it's not just me. I always like to have a guest on and I have a return guest. This is a man who's been on the show a few times over the last couple of years. Always a pleasure to have him back on. It's music commentator, guitarist, songwriter, singer, band leader extraordinaire, Mr. Shane Pacey of the Bondi Cigars. Welcome back, Shane. Good day to you, Morris. How are you? All the better for hearing your dulcet tones. <laughs> Wonderful to have you back. Thank you. As we were talking about off air, the album that we're going to be talking about today is one of those albums that I just came to my head thinking, why haven't I done this? Oh, because no one I know would know this album. And then I thought, oh no, hang on a sec. I know exactly someone who'll know this album. Pentangles Basket of Light. I went to you. I said, are you a fan of this album? And you said, bloody hell yeah. <laughs> No surprise, no surprise. So we'll get into talking about that in a few minutes, but just wanting to know, so uh, what's keeping you busy musically in this weird time? I mean, people will be listening to the show five years from now and will probably have gone through three or four other disasters in the world and no one's going to remember COVID, but will know what we're talking about. But how are you keeping busy musically at the moment? Well, I'm not really. I, I've been through a bit of a God's great banana skin got hold of me and knocked me down for a, a, a few months, which I'm just coming out of now. But uh, yeah, I'm still picking up my guitar. I post a song on Facebook every Friday. I usually prepare for that through the week. But that's about it, really. I'm just looking forward to the day when I can play with my friends again. And uh, because it's all about playing with people for me. Uh, I'm not really one of those people who tinkers in the studio like Brian Wilson types. It's all about playing live so hopefully this unpleasantness will be fading away soon and i'll be able to go back to doing that just waiting for that but I've, my guitar set up in the lounge room just looking at me i've done that deliberately i've just I lean up leaning up against my amp every day i just turn it on and pick it up and whittle away for a while generally just trying to come up with songs and stuff i always like to have a purpose for doing things so it's usually a, a gig which there aren't any at the moment so looking forward to the day when you can play live again come down to melbourne of course yeah. we had the sad news this week that the caravan club is closing down so 
one less wonderful venue for you to play in but hopefully from the ashes phoenix will arise and there'll be another great venue i know we've got the memos still so yeah fingers crossed you can come and play there absolutely so as i said a minute ago the album that you and i are going to be discussing is an album from 1969 by a group called pentangle which often put in the folk rock bag and there's something to that but it's also not really right and no. sort of, we'll go into that a little bit more once we start the show proper i just want to give out a couple of shout outs so after you and i have finished our discussion shane the rest of the show will be devoted to an interview that i did what are we in now mid-may so probably the beginning of april with a really interesting fellow called roland sutherland now he's a british flautist and a jazz professor i had not heard of him before a few weeks ago but i did a little bit of research while i was looking up some stuff about pentangle and came across a website that indicated that he'd played at the london jazz festival in november of 2019 where he assembled a band to play Basket of Light, our focus album for this show, but in his own style. And I thought, wow, he's probably got some interesting stories to tell. So I listened a little bit to his own music. And then I contacted him and said, look, would you like to come on the show and just have a little bit of a chat about your own music and about your connection to Pentangle's music and Basket of Light in particular? And he was very, very happy to. And he sent me a few tracks of his own versions that he'd recorded at the London Jazz Festival of songs from Basket of Light. So I was really wrapped to be able to hear this alternative approach to these songs. So after Shane and I have finished our conversation, there'll be a half hour discussion with Roll. So please stick around for that. Really fascinating fellow. Very, very friendly fellow. And even though there's only like a half hour recording there, we spoke for about two hours. So I'll be putting some links in to the show notes about where you can listen to his music and maybe, you know, where you can purchase some of his music. Really well worth seeking out. And another fellow who I want to give a shout out to is a guy called Alan Pattinson. Now, Alan has a really fantastic blog called Alan's Album Archives. He'll sort of focus on bands that he loves and he'll go through their entire discography and break those albums down in a written way similarly to how we do on this podcast but in a very very well thought out way and i found out that he'd gone and written almost like a whole thesis if you will on pentangle's basket of light i started reading some of it and i thought no i don't want to read it too much otherwise it will sort of affect the way how i think but I came up with a whole bunch of my notes, then went back to it. And it's really, really terrific stuff. But he's got so much stuff. He's been writing for years. And you just sort of wonder, where does this guy find the time to sleep? He's just gotten and written so much and so thoroughly. So I wholeheartedly recommend that you go and search out Alan's album archives, read his blogs about a whole bunch of albums, a lot of his writings about specific albums he's gone and put out as eBooks. So if you want to go and purchase one of his eBooks, I'd wholeheartedly recommend that you do that. All right, that's all that introductory stuff. What we'll do now is we'll go and play the cart where Joanne gives you the contact details where to listen to the show if you want an alternative way to listen to it to the way you're doing now we'll be back to talk about pentangle and their 1969 album basket of light you're listening to love that album i got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor we hope you're enjoying the show you can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. 
To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. And we're back from break. Morris over here, Shane over there. And we're going to be talking about the group Pentangle and their album Basket of Light. It's an album I just cannot believe, Shane. It took me like, what, eight or nine years to come to on this podcast. This has been a huge part of my life since maybe I was nine or ten years old. All right. So I've got to ask you, do you have a recollection of the first time that you heard Pentangle? Was it through this album? Were you still in the UK when you heard it? What are your connections to Pentangle? I came here at the age of 10, so I'd only just formed in 1968 when I came here. I used to read about them in the British rock press, which I started buying at the age of 12, 11 or 12, I think, NME and Melody Maker. I would read articles about them and I always find them intriguing, intriguing what they said and about folk music. And I hadn't really heard much of this kind of thing, except the folk music I was subjected to as a child in England through, oh, look, I think there's a bit of an antipathy with British people of a certain age to folk music. It's gone now. I think young British people are quite into folk music, but my generation at school, a radio show would come through once a week and we'd have to sit around and sing along with this radio show. It was folk songs for children. And mm. I now think it was um, run by somebody like A.L. Lloyd and Ewan McCollum, people like that. And it was all these fruity voiced people singing these songs, which I, I heard later with bands like Fairport and Pentangle. They're done in this awful way, like a, is my delight on a bright. Yeah, it was awful. So I was a bit suspicious about folk. The way Pentangle looked, they all looked shabby, like bohemians, and you know, they can't be that daggy, you know. And then after I came to Australia, around about 72 or 73, Pentangle toured here and they did a TV special. I don't even think it was for the ABC. I think it was for Channel 9 or somebody, where it was just a whole hour of Pentangle. And that's where I first heard them. I was in kind of Jethro Tull, prog rock mode then, at the age of about 13 or 14. And I, I definitely found them interesting because it, it wasn't the kind of folk music that I remembered as a kid, all that other stuff. You're saying that that television special that you saw here, was that actually filmed in Australia? Yeah, I think there might be a couple of clips on uh, YouTube from it too, probably around the time of Solomon's Seal, uh, where they started using electric guitars a little bit as well. And, and they all sat down. That was the other thing that, yeah, I mean, bands just didn't sit down. Bands that I knew, they were all just sitting down and looking, you know, <laughs> looking like they were just, yeah, but I suppose that's a folk thing, isn't it, to sit down. In the notes that I read that comes with the Pentangle box set, really, really excellent biography in, yeah. in that box set. But it mentioned that Jackie McShee basically had some sort of chronic fright. And I think that one of the earliest gigs that Pentangle did, she found that she couldn't stand because it just absolutely scared her shitless. So yeah. <laughs> had to sit down thereafter more out of fear rather than it being the typical folk thing to do. You're right, yeah. Well, that's understandable. I was in England uh, about 15, 20 years ago, something like that, and I went to Cropperty, which is Fairport's big festival they have once a year, and Jackie was on with the new Pentangle, which was very electronic. It was weird, but she was standing for that. But if you look at those early clips of them, she looks terrified still. Yeah. Her eyes are wide open, and 
she looks so self-conscious you know I guess that's just a personality thing mm. uh, she was definitely wasn't a big mama type of lead singer no she wasn't a Sandy Denny either I mean Sandy was a larger than life but I think Jackie was definitely more of the school mom type uh, <laughs> definitely the introvert although from what I'm understanding and I hope I'm not telling tales out of school that like Sandy Denny she and for that matter all a pentangle liked a bit of the drink yes I, I, I don't think that's a big secret <laughs> <laughs> so they did share something in common. <laughs> so that was the first time I, I heard them. I didn't start buying their stuff until I got back into folk music, which is a couple of years later. You know, I think I, I really went through a big phase of buying, especially British folk music, uh, because I don't, I don't really know why. I think I, it just started talking to me as, as being an English person, thinking I should really probably investigate this my own culture a little bit more. So all of those bands that are in Fairport, Pentangles kind of group, and the, the solo guys, especially Bert and um, Richard Thompson, all those people. And it's that stayed with me ever since. I, I'm still incredibly fascinated by it all. There's so much mystery in it and so much danger and tradition that you can't help but be drawn into it, especially if you're from the British Isles. The interesting thing is, like, I remember reading in that booklet, once again, that came with the Pentangle box set many years ago. It seemed like everyone, like in Scotland or in Wales or in Northern Ireland, for that matter, were all very heavily invested in that sort of level of folk music. Yeah. So from traditions way back. Whereas in England itself, at the time, the book says that the general public was still more heavily invested in the new music, in what was coming from the Beatles and the Kinks and the Stones, what was happening now, rather than in the music of their parents or great-grandparents or the like. It doesn't exactly strike as being completely true with me because you still had musicians coming out of that scene like Ralph McTell or David Graham mm. and you know John Renborn himself yeah. is doing things. And I mean, okay, Bert Yarch was Scottish, so he came from that tradition. So I just sort of found that a really unusual statement. It wasn't as ingrained in the culture as it is in, in places like Ireland and Scotland. You either were into folk music or you weren't in, in England. But in places like Ireland and Scotland, it's just part of the everyday culture. See, all those people were into rock music and new stuff as well in, in those places. But it didn't mean that they couldn't be interested in their culture. I, I, I've pinpointed down with, with England. It's, that, it's down to the, the first thing about those radio things, which was just so un cool and plus morris dancing i think that's another thing that turns people right off i'm totally fascinated by morris dancing it's as valid as any kind of indigenous culture there is it's actually about violence and power and strength initially when you look at it it's just like a, a bunch of blokes skipping in around in white with holding sticks what is your profession <laughs> It's still an object of fun to be made fun of with a lot of English people, but more and more now I think people are just embracing those things. If you actually see it done, the noise and the power of it is it's something else. Yeah, so that's why I think it's just there was a folk scene in England and that's where all these bands came up through. Not all of them. Yeah, I don't think particularly Pentangle came up through the folk scene, but a lot of them did. I mean, like Fairport came up through the psychedelic scene. If you want to talk about it a bit later, there's a reason why a lot of these people started embracing their own culture around the same time. And I think it's not it wasn't an accident. What do you think was the catalyst? A lot of the, these musicians were playing blues. Uh, Richard Thompson's talked about this. They're all playing blues or American music. Like Fairport were, were very much an English version of uh, Jefferson Airplane. The guys in Pentangle, most of them were playing jazz and, and blues. The band's album came out, music from the Big Pink. Ten years ago Someone killed me the 
American and standard American and they weren't taking stuff from another culture. And I think a lot of the English people thought, well, we should do that too. We got this massive culture and we should really reflect it. That was certainly the case with Fairport. And it kind of made folk music, indigenous British music, a bit less a thing to be avoided. And it, it all just kind of exploded around the same time as that album came out. Well, the band were different to anyone else that were yeah. around at the time. I mean, I know that I think even the Beatles went and said, we're changing the way we're doing things because of the band. How many other bands were going to have a photo like on the front cover of the Brown album? Uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a real throwback to century gone past. There was no psychedelics. This is a celebration of what's happened in the last hundred years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're an inspiration for, for the rock community as well as the folk community. I mean, what happened was it, it had two effects. The first thing that happened was that all the rock, all the psychedelic guys suddenly all wanted to sound like the band. You can actually almost pinpoint it where all these bands suddenly started looking and sounding like the band. That was kind of in the rock scene. The folk, people that were coming up through the folk scene saw it as a way to get folk music a bit more into the, what they were doing. I just want to sort of talk for a couple of minutes about where I found Pentangle. My two sisters were both heavily into folk. One had already left home by the time I was four. Like I'd go around to her place and listen to her American folk styling. So she loved Odetta and Simon and Garfunkel. And my other sister was very much into the English stuff. So she had Steel I Span albums. Mm. The one though that attracted me the most, I guess, was Commoners Crank because that had a drum kit in it. original more folky stuff was great but once I sort of got into the folk rock train that's where I got on board the other big album that she had was Basket of Light by Pentangle and I asked her about this the other day I said do you still have that record she said yeah got it at my place it's banged up pretty badly I said yeah that's my fault because I think I played it over and over and over again and you got to understand like this is a time before I'd even really fully embraced rock music in our house it was either classical music the only exception was the folk stuff so once I found rock music I didn't put any other stuff by the wayside, but I thought, wow, I've got this other revenue. So what did you make of it when you listened to it? What did you think it was? Did you identify it as folk? I guess I must have because it sort of sounded a little bit, well, with Jackie McShee's vocals sounding similar, but not the same as Maddie Pryor's vocals, you know, with more with the intonation on yeah. the more folky songs on the album. And yet there was stuff on this that sounded nothing like what I was hearing on Steel I Spam. And over the years, I sort of came to appreciate the music of Davy Graham, Fairport Convention, Martin Carthy, Fotheringay, The Straubs, Shirley Collins, probably more rooted in the folk tradition with putting a more contemporary rock spin on what they were doing. But Basket of Light and Pentangle in general sort of seemed like a band that were reverential to folk without being taken in completely by it. Because I want to talk for a few minutes about the history of the band. Yeah. We often hear like nowadays, if you go to a festival like Port Ferry or, or Byron Bay, no doubt, where they'll say, oh, such and such a band has an influence of all sorts of styles. And I'm thinking, thinking, no, you're a blues band, and it's not bad, but maybe the guitarist once picked up a Pete Seeger album or, or has a Bob Dylan album in their collection But mm. from the early days. But Pentangle 
and real another band who I wouldn't necessarily compare them to for any other reason, but Pentangle and The Doors mm. are two bands which, to me, really did take musicians who were trained in different styles brought them into the melting pot and made it work. I mean, with yeah. with the doors, you had a flamenco guitar player and a classically trained keyboard player and, and a jazz-trained drummer, and they somehow managed to make it all really work. They had a common goal. And in Pentangle, as we'll get to, you had members who were jazz-trained, blues-trained, one member who was trained as a classical guitarist, and a singer who really was enamored in the traditional folk style at least to mm. my ears so really the first time i heard it i was just sort of accepting oh is this what folk music is okay it really must be i fell in love with it but as we'll sort of get to when we sort of get to talking about the themes and styles on the album there's so much going on one thing i love to talk about on this show is variation and this album does have a variety of different things going on and yet it is completely cohesive it's not a hodgepodge of little things just collected onto one platter that matters this is a whole lot of things going on that because they are so in tune with what they're doing they all manage to make it work and sound like one cohesive thing and we'll talk about specific songs as we go along That's a sign of a great album, isn't it, though? I mean, a lot of things we've talked about in the past, and one you've talked about that I wasn't involved in, like Kiko, Los Lobos, is, mm. is, a, is a classic example of that, where every song on it almost is sounds like something else, but you know it's Los Lobos and you know it's on it's Kiko, and it, it's the same with this. I mean, almost every song is pulling in different things, and it just all works together. That's what we're always looking for, I think. Yeah, I don't have a problem with listening to an album where stylistically you know what you're getting on the first song and no. what you're getting on the end song, and there's a ballad in between. I've no problem with some great albums in that line, but there's just some extra delight that I take. And I confess, like listening to this album for this show, okay, what can I pick up here? There are new things that I picked up along the way. And like you, Shane, I've been listening to this album for you know, most of my life. It's always wonderful where you can pick up new things and appreciate them, which is part of the reason why I do this program. Yeah, absolutely. That's the other mark of a, of a great album is to play and just go, oh, I haven't even noticed that before so did you find that in listening to the album for the show that you were picking up little things along the way yeah absolutely i mean there are songs that i mean even though i've had this album I'm, I'm looking at my copy now there's a sticker on the back that says 595 so that's how long i've had this that's how long i've had this album i think the first record that i ever bought was 599 or something like that so <laughs> yeah. so yeah you and i are of a vintage maybe because i was listening to it more closely than i probably would sometimes i just put things on and i do other things as well sometimes i sit and listen especially at the moment I'm doing a lot more sitting and listening than I probably did before. But yeah, it is dense, this album. It's dense with stuff, just little details. So definitely picking up new things.
let's talk just for a few minutes about their history, at least as far as Basket of Light, because mm. there's there's a lot in there, and let's just get it up to that point, because after that, it gets to be the usual decline and sort of thing that you hear with a lot of bands. But it's interesting to sort of note what got them to Basket of Light in 69. They've been called a supergroup, which... I won't say I have trouble with the notion of a supergroup because, yeah, there are bands that often supergroups tend to be a whole lot of disappointment to me. You get people who are famous for one thing and then they're all getting together to bring something new into the world and more often than not, it ends up being something of a disappointment. This is what I guess the the kids are now calling a reverse supergroup. And even there, I mean, none of these people were ever household names. It's just that all of them had a living before they sort of combined in Pentangle. And I think even Jackie maybe wasn't really doing much in terms of public singing before Pentangle became a thing. She had a day job. She was the only member of the group (laughs) that actually had a day job and she was rolling into work still drunk from the night before and realised that this wasn't going to work. But Bert was the first recording artist, I believe, to be on what was then the new Transatlantic Records label. And I believe that there's like a three or four CD box set of various artists from Transatlantic Records. And I think I've got to search that one out. That'd just be terrific to listen to. I do have that one. I always see the term supergroup as a band that's been cynically formed, expecting success and money with people that might not necessarily have that much in common. I think Pentangle formed in a much more organic way than that, just to play together. And But Jansh and John Renborn had a little residency and they just got people in to play. John was already sort of like recording with Jackie. I think like one of his solo albums was he had a few tunes with Jackie singing either backup or co-lead vocal on Ain't nobody's fault but mine Nobody's fault but mine If I don't read my sober laws Ain't nobody's fault but mine I think he saw like had a, a residency with her. He'd be doing shows just with us, but he was also, as you say, playing with Bert and John recorded, I think might've been Bert's second album, just called Bert and John. They knew each other on this scene and John was already doing something with Jackie. They said, oh, well, why don't we make it a trio? Mm. Got a few individual albums of Bert Yanch, but only got this two CD anthology of John Renborn. Even the variety of stuff there is something to behold. I mean, we're talking about what's happening in Pentangle, but John had originally been a classical trained guitarist who then when the skiffle craze hit, that's what led into folk music. And most other musicians said, oh, uh, skiffle led me to rock and roll. But given that a lot of skiffle was new arrangements of traditional folk music, I can sort of see why that led John to go down that other path. Yeah, most of the British folk guys came up through skiffle at the crossroads there where they rode folk forks. Yeah, some guys went rock and roll and some guys went carried on with the folk music. Reading up the notes in the John Renborn anthology was the first that I realised that there was that separate road. Everything I'd ever listened to, you know, with the, the Kinks and with John Lennon, everyone had set up a skiffle group at some stage and then became a rock and roll band. But I don't really know where Desi Chewing Gum lose its flavour. <laughs> fits in either narrative. I won't hear a word said about against that song it's a classic oh it's a great song but it's not rock and, <laughs> it's not rock no. and roll and it's not folk no, no Rock Island Line is definitely Lonnie's first song that's a big precursor to the British rock scene well I may be right I may be wrong I know you're gonna miss me when I'm gone and the Rock Island Line is in the Rock Island Line is the
lot of the guys that love Lonnie Donegan probably, when he started doing the comedy songs, probably left him by the wayside by then. But Cumberland Gap and Rock Island Line are definitely pre-British rock and roll, I think. Rock Island Line really does rock. Ex- explains why a lot of teenage English guitarists were so drawn to it. Yeah, definitely. When young men want energy. They don't really, you know, they, they want skill and all that stuff. But what they're looking for is energy. And that's probably the guys that really were more into energy than music and, and storytelling carried on in rock and roll and guys that were more into playing and telling stories went the other way it's hard to know coming back for a moment to the john renborn anthology there's a lot more of the ye old english folk style there's a song called lady nothing's toy puff and Brunzy Gay, which very much showed where John's head was at yeah. pre-Pentangle. And you listen to those early Bert Yarnch songs and there's a hint of it, but he's really very more of like what I'm calling the percussive guitar player. Even though they've lumped together a lot, those two guys are very different players. I mean, those some of those titles that you mentioned, especially I've learned Lady Nothing's Toy Puff. It's a head spinner to learn. They have more in common with lute music and, and sort of Elizabethan, not so much folk song as, as much, but Bert, even though he's indulged in that a little bit, Bert was became more out of the blues, like Big Bill Brunzi. I think all of these guys, once they heard Davy Graham, all just changed overnight. to the Americans as well because you know Paul Simon learned how to play Angie yeah um, yeah, that's right. That, so it's both a Yanch tune and a Simon tune. Davy Graham must have changed the rules for everyone. He certainly did. All of these guys were a bit opportunistic when it came to folk music because they were the only places where a guy with an acoustic guitar could play were the folk clubs. So a lot of them had to just learn some folk songs. It's not like they were folk purists. I think none of them were. Davy was probably more interested in jazz than folk. And I think Bert was probably more interested in blues. And once Davy came along, Bert went his own way. He took a lot of what Davy was doing and then he started writing his own songs, probably influenced by by Dylan. So Bert went that way. He was much more interested in songs, whereas John Renborn was much more interested in playing in a much more kind of organised way. And in Pentangle, they really complemented each other in a way that you wouldn't expect, just giving each other room, I think, to do their own thing. You can really pick them apart if you know what you're listening for. I think I can tell them apart in terms of the sort of percussive ways. I'm going to call it that. I think it's Bert who plays. Is that claw hammer yeah John's technique is much more classically neat in that he uses all his fingers yep Bert's is much more like the American blues tradition which is a thumb and two fingers which is often called claw hammer or Travis picking stuff like that and Bert's a lot more free and easy with time than John tends to I can't remember if we had this conversation like on Facebook Messenger a few weeks ago but I possibly mentioned to you that I went to see Bert Yanch play in Melbourne at the Continental Cafe uh, I don't know I can't remember the early or mid 90s or something like that mm. And the thing that struck me live far more so than on the records was he was playing very free and easy with time yeah. signatures. He was not one to say, right, really, a metronome would have done no good for him, at least not in the live. It's like, oh, yeah, I think I'll play this for a little bit. I'll know when to sing next. You know, I'll just keep playing this. But it was mesmerizing. 
I, I don't know how many other guitarists could get away with it, but man, oh man, just watching him do what he did, it just seemed so right. I mean, obviously, when you're playing with a band, you sort of have to go in a lot more with what the band's doing and keeping in time. But he still was never metronomic. That was not his way. And uh, I, I think sort of the band worked in with each other. Yeah, that rhythm section of Danny Thompson and Terry Cox, mm. who did say, right, come on, fellas, you have to work in with us. But they were listening to what the guitarists were doing as much as getting them to listen to what they were doing rhythmically. So Yeah, sure. Look, I don't think Pentangle would have worked at all with a more conventional rock rhythm section. If Dave Pegg and, and uh, Dave Mattox mm. had a giant Pentangle, it would have been, I think they would have been fisticuffs within about half an hour and the band, <laughs> the band wouldn't have got past rehearsals because there was, you know, those guys are much more fluid and are able to sort of pick up on any kind of nuance that the other guys might be doing. It, it really didn't make a difference. And that's, I think, it's what separates Pentangle from all the other British you know, folk rocks holding up four fingers, you know, because there wasn't much rock in Pentangle really. If any. <laughs> you know what? I'll take you to task on that a little bit later mm-hmm. on when we're talking about some individual songs from the album. Coming back to your point about Dave Maddox never being able to work in a band like Pentacle, and that's probably true, but I think stylistically, I think it's not so much just what he plays, but I think that Pentangle were a group of like-minded I, I don't know if I ever read that they were friends but they were friendly mm. and they all understood each other and they all drank a lot together and they were all seemingly pretty shy and insular and they loved the music first and that's not to say that Dave Maddox didn't love the music and I've no idea whether he was a drinker or not but these were a group of like-minded souls they worked together as people as well as musicians so yeah. I, I think it is much to do about that as as it is to do with how a particular musician approached what they did with their instrument. And Dave Maddox is really one of my favourite British drummers ever. Oh, he's, he's brilliant. He's probably a bad example because he came up through a dance band, so he probably could have. He's always struck me as very much a strict tempo kind of drummer, though. Um, he is, yes, yes. He maybe could have fitted in with, with uh, Pentangle, but I don't know. There's just something about the way like Terry and Danny play, which breathes a lot more to me, which you need with somebody like Bert playing. It's not going to work with every rhythm section, you know. It's just because of the way he plays there's lots of pushing and pulling and, and space and air I mean I, I put this album on yesterday because I still play records and uh, it, it, it's going to sound spacious and airy no matter what format you're listening to but just, just that first track just coming out and you can just hear the space in the music even though it's not it's not actually sparse music it's actually quite busy but the space is there and it's all important for this band i think well look we'll come back to that when we actually get around two hours from now talking about the album <laughs> but, but just so the devil's in the detail morris <laughs> so just a couple more historical things i think sort of worth noting john met terry and danny on a tv show that had been hosted by bluesman alexis corner who also ran the band blues incorporated <laughs> had invited Terry and Danny to sit in with him and Jackie and 
Burt. John Jackie and Burt had gone and established a regular night at a pub called the Horseshoe Tavern in London. So he said, oh, why don't you come and sit in with us? Which they did. And it was going to be this informal thing. And there were a whole bunch of their friends, all manner of folk musicians who came and sat in with them. I mean, I'd love to know whether Billy Connolly was part of that crowd because like before he became this big comedian, he was a folk musician. And there was a great documentary. I know I'm digressing again, but there's a great documentary that I watched filmed like I think in the 70s about the British folk scene of the period and he showed up and there was a guy called Wiz Jones and how unfortunate, you know, did your parents really... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> whiz but <laughs> look i suspect that might be a uh not not his real name <laughs> oh, really oh, oh, okay. <laughs> that documentary is on youtube i've seen it i think it's called folk roots new roots it's brilliant but billy would definitely yeah, i think he was still up in scotland then and but he, he knew bert from that scene up there there was a club called the half that they both used to play in and billy was more of a banjo player and a folk singer then one of those guys where the jokes started getting longer than the songs <laughs> <laughs> until, until the jokes took over. I've got a couple of albums with, that he did with Jerry Rafferty. They had a band called The Humble Ones. Don't cry, lady, I'll buy you roses too. Come on, lady, take off the dark sunglasses. Come on, mother, we all know it's you. Another folk guy who yeah. never would have guessed. My I know. And the, Jerry's songs are great, and Billy's are, are not so great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he, he, you're saying he chose his career wisely. I think so. So anyway, in the end, Terry and Danny just sort of kept hanging around with John and Bert and Jackie's regular Sunday nights at the Horseshoe Tavern. Those were the nights where she wasn't really coming back on time to her day job on the Monday morning, and she finally decided to throw that in and say, well, let's see if we can make a bit of a fist of it. They did go and do other gigs while they were still doing their time at the Horseshoe. They were called in to do a a series of gigs, I think, at a Danish venue, which unfortunately was labelled with Britain's newest rock sensation. (laughs) So according to Bert, and all these are notes from that box set I was talking about. According to Bert, the room was full of 15-year-old males. It had to be males. I mean, I didn't read that, but I'm presuming it had to be <laughs> blokes who were expecting rock and wanted rock. So they booed them and they thought, what will we do? And Bert said, play louder. They did. And the whole group said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit like the Blues Brothers and yeah. the, the country and Western thing. Just play the, <laughs> play the same folk songs, crank up the amps. They did continue to do what they did in other festivals, even sharing a gig in Belfast with Jimi Hendrix. You know, I mean, look, if Jimi Hendrix could play with the Monkees, then he surely could play with Pentangle. <laughs> they did that in early 1968. They got a manager. I don't know if he's famous or infamous, but he certainly did a lot for the folk scene an american guy i think originally out of new york guy called joe lusty yeah out of brooklyn he followed an artist called julie felix to england and stayed and he met danny and john who were playing i think on the julie felix sessions and he basically said i like what you do I want to manage you. Basically, he also went on to manage Ralph McTell and Steel I Span and Jethro Tull and the Chieftain. So he was, he was a folk guy. Yeah. But supposedly, Pentangle 
was his big break. But he decided to do the, right, I'm pulling you out of circulation. So they finished their gigs at the horseshoe. Said, no, that's small time. We have to create a sense of want. We have to create a sense of anticipation. He got them to record their first album with Shell Tell Me, of all mm. people. I know that the Who were never that satisfied with Shell Tell Me. The Kinks are that crazy about him on the early efforts. But I'm going to make a case that, because he produced their first three albums, I'm going to make a case that his production style, at least for Basket of Light, was definitely a big part of what makes the album sound so great. Yeah, I think all Shell Tell Me's productions sound great. His personality might not have been to everybody's taste, so who knows? Look, I think that's definitely the case because the first Who album, My Generation, there's never another album that sounded as vibrant and as no. fresh as that. Anyway, so with Pentangle and Basket of Light, he produced the first three albums, The Pentangle, which is the first <laughs> one, and then there was Sweet Child, which I think you might have already mentioned, which was a live album and a studio album. Really unusual for a band which was sort of not lighting the charts on fire necessarily, but they were allowed to put out a double album and, and being allowed to record it live and in the studio. And that's just some mark of the love that Transatlantic had for this band. And they were going to be a folk label. So it, it might not have been the case if they'd gone through a more traditional rock and roll album labels. That was great for them. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great album too. I really like it. It's, it's, it's wonderful. The first three are, are just uh, indispensable, really. And we'll get to this more when we talk in you know, the next five minutes, I promise you, folks. <laughs> When we talk about Basket of Light, the big thing that makes, for me, Basket of Light a cohesive album is the fact that it's every band member on every album. You have instrumentals on the first two albums, and I sort of think that taking Jackie out of the equation, and I'm sure she had no problem with it, but doing Goodbye Pork Pie Hat uh, or, or Bells is sort of like saying, well, here are the skills of the instrumentalists of the album. Jackie, you just sit in the corner for a bit. I mean, they're great albums. They're magnificent albums, but it, it just sort of doesn't sound as cohesive no, that's as, true. as Basket of Light does. Basket of Light was the first album that I heard of theirs like in my youth. But coming back to the, those early albums, as I said, wonderful albums. But Basket of Light still holds it for me as sounding like a full band album. You know, yeah. Her instrument is her voice. And um, so that look, that's pretty much like a, a Reader's Digest version of what <laughs> led up to Pentangle and their album Basket of Light. I think before we get into talking about the album, let's just go for another break. I'll probably play a podcast promo and then you and I come back and talk about the album proper. What do you say? Excellent. All right. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album with myself and Shane.
Movies and music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbean.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. Out, out. Break, Morrison, you're in Melbourne. Shane over in Mittagong. Am I allowed to say that? Should I say? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I don't have to say Shane from Sydney. Uh, no. Okay. no, 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 no. Morrison, Melbourne. Shane in Mittagong. There's no alliteration there. That's a shame. <laughs> My name should be uh, Mervin. <laughs> uh, it would have worked out much better. Okay. All right. <laughs> Morris here in Melbourne. Mervin in Mittagong. <laughs> But we'll call him Shane because that's what his mother calls him. We're here talking about Basket of Light. You might have wondered whether we were going to get to the album proper, and finally we are. We are going to probably go down some other directions because that's what we do here on this program. But ostensibly, the rest of this program is to be talking about the 1969 album by Pentangle called Basket of Light. We've sort of spoken to this point about what got them there. And I want to know from your perspective... Shane, do you think that this is a guitarist's album? I mean, we know that there's so much that goes into from all the band members, but we frequently hear about any number of rock guitarists who they say, right, this is a great inspirational guitarist's album, despite the fact that there's a whole bunch of other musicians doing great stuff in there. Do you think that this is an undiscovered guitar player's album. You could see it like that. I mean, if you've never heard these guys before and you weren't familiar with this kind of guitar playing, it might be a bit of a revelation to you. But I don't think it's it's front and centre. I think it's much more about the songs and the arrangements and that, the overall sound. Uh, that's how I see it. I've always seen it, although there is some jaw-dropping guitar playing on here. I wouldn't see it as a guitar album like the first Jimi Hendrix album or something. But definitely, if you were into a different kind of guitar playing and you didn't know much about the British acoustic guitar style, it would be a bit of an eye-opener for you. Because when we normally think about Guitar Hero albums, they're all playing electric stuff. I mean, my jaw drop first time, what the hell is that, was, I think, back in 82, 83, hearing Friday Night in San Francisco, thinking, mm. I didn't know you could do that with an acoustic guitar. And yet, of course I did, because Bert Yanch and John Renborn weren't doing what McLaughlin, Demiola and De Lucia were doing with a guitar, but they were doing amazingly acrobatic stuff with their guitars. But as you have already gone and said there the song was always the king especially for Bert he always said that he was much more interested in songs although I think secretly he was also a bit fascinated about what he could do with the guitar and there's plenty of evidence on that one of the things that always really struck me about quite a few of the songs on this album is their use of light and shade 
Yeah. One of the frequent mantra words on this program is dynamic. Uh, yeah. I love the sense of drama and the sense of pullback. They know when to make something intense and they know when to make something. I guess you can really say something is tense when it's quiet and bubbling because there's that anticipation of when is it going to explode. And this album isn't about explosions, but there are moments of... I don't know if I want to say menace, but there's certainly moments of feeling ill at ease. And I mean that in a good musical way. I think the one of the big examples of that is the second song in the album, Once I Had a Sweetheart. Yeah. That's a magnificent song of unrequited love, a relationship that turns bad. And the singer of the song, Jackie McShee, she's talking about her misery at this cad who's gone mm. walked out on her life. In best folk tradition, this song is, to me, something of a Frankenstein's monster. It's, you know, been adapted from any number of early folk songs, yeah. uh, all of which have been passed down generation to generation before people got hung up on the recorded music of their parents' generation and said, well, we can't listen to that. This is a time where pretty much what you were talking about in parts of the UK that weren't England, they never had that hang-up. Oh, my parents like this. All right, well, I've got to be listening to that. And you know, what the band were responsible for getting the, the Brits to recognise was so important about it. There's something interesting to said about a lot of the songs that these bands did in that there were traditional English songs, but there were no recorded versions of them except from America. The songs travelled. This one is is, is a one example. They, they travelled to play like the Appalachians and they don't get changed that much but they get changed enough where there are Frankenstein songs this song has its roots in other older songs like a lot of them do and then the only recorded versions all of the English players had were like people like Joan Baez and uh, people like that it's almost like Coles going away from Newcastle then coming back to Newcastle again it's a really weird process and you find that with a lot of songs there's a song we'll probably talk about later that's an even more extreme example of that The House Carpenter yes but you're right the way this song kind of undulates and it used to remind me of a kind of a rocking boat. Well, the Americans figured that the Brits were reselling them rock and roll. So turnabout is fair play, if you want to look at it like that. It's totally fair play. It's, it's the way music works. There's, there's nothing to be criticised about it, but it's just interesting. A lot of the songs that Jackie, Lo not Jackie Lomax, Alan Lomax collected from that area, they, they hadn't changed at all, except maybe in, in accent and rhythm. I know that we're sort of like making this slight digression away from the song. We will come back to that in a moment, I promise you, folks. But I think that is something fascinating fascinating about the English tradition that understands that a song is never finished. It's just readapted and reclaimed in a different way. In the rock milieu, I mean, we sort of go back a few years ago to that whole debacle about Men at Work's Down Under song and the whole notion of Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree and the publishers saying, right, oh, we own the copyright. No, we didn't write it. We just financially paid for the copyright of that. We're going to sue you for everything that you had. And poor Greg Ham couldn't take the stain on his name and yet no one in the folk world ever had that issue of they've stolen our song they understand the song has been adapted from generation to generation they've taken something they've done something different with it and this song for instance had a maiden sat a weeping as sylvie was walking oh a maiden sat a weeping down by the side 
relaxing shore What ails my pretty mistress? What makes thy heart so sore? I've listened to versions of both of those songs and they're similar but different. I'm just in awe of the fact that a different mindset that the folk community has that the rock community doesn't or the, the publishers don't and the judge in charge of the Down Under debacle didn't want to hear say look I'm not a musician music isn't my thing I'm just looking at the law of the land and if it says that he's gone and taken this melody that there's a copyright from and they're suing because of that then you have to pay recompense yeah there's no copyright on all of these folk songs they're too old oh I'm sure someone will find a way it's only when money becomes involved it's like you know Paul Simon took Martin Carthy's arrangement of Scarborough Fair and put it on a million selling album and it really is pretty well lifted from Martin Carthy I mean that's an old song but nobody ever played it like that in that kind of 6-8 time with that guitar line so I think Martin was a little bit upset about that at his core he understood that it's just music moving like it does from one place to the next well coming back to the Pentangle rendition of Once I Had a Sweetheart this is the perfect example of what I mean with build up it's like watching a great horror film you're building up suspense here you're building up the drama building up the dynamic it's a song equivalent of a great piece of literature or a great film and I like the fact that there's a sitar in this song like <laughs> yeah. sitars were not uncommon at the time every rock musician worth his soul you know Brian Jones and George Harrison were saying oh what's happening with this groovy Indian instrument and the, the, the pentangle Alexis Corner called them up and said hey I've got a, I've got a sitar lying around you want it for 10 pounds and they were like, yeah sure why not John, <laughs> John Renborn played with it but he wasn't thinking about it uh, well how can I bring Ravi Shankar's musical style into mm. Pentangle I'm thinking oh I've got this new instrument how can I make it sound like a folk instrument or indeed like a blues instrument so we got on this song we start off with I think it's John starting off mm. playing two bars of this motif in the right channel John playing I can't sorry, whoever whoever does it the first the other one does it in the one the other the other one I can't quite tell which one is playing in which channel but you got John in one channel Bert in the other channel playing like a harmonious variation above what the first guy's playing yeah then we start with this first verse of Jackie's gorgeous voice and it's really like an instrument unto itself and Danny's bowed bass joining in, in what just really creates in my mind a sense of dread by the end of the first verse Terry Cox comes in with this muted snare playing a simple pattern and a glockenspiel and he does Mm. a lot of glockenspiel on this album not common on a rock album certainly and Jackie overdubs her voice with a harmony vocal and just all this stuff is building up yeah every verse is and something right Lego by Lego block and building up the drama and at the end of the second verse before the lead up into the third John starts playing this droning sound on Mm. the sitar When we hear that sort of droning thing on the Stooges' first album, it's brilliant. Over here, it's oh, considered unusual. But for me, when I think of the use of a sitar in a Western context, this is the song. Not Norwegian Wood, not the Stooges, 
not the Rolling Stones, it's this. Possibly because it's the first thing I heard, but it's them not trying to necessarily do it in an Eastern style. They're just sort of saying, wow, cool, another instrument for us to play. It doesn't sound like it's been prized in because it's a fashionable hip sound. It sounds like it's because it's modal in a way, you know, and it's playing quite simple things. And it's just, it's a sound. They're using it as a sound rather than a look at us, we're using a sitar kind of thing. So coming back to what you said before that, well, you know, they didn't really incorporate rock into what they did but because of the use of the sitar on this song I think it's a very rock song It's not rock in the sense of like what you said, what Jimi Hendrix or what the counterculture was doing at the time. But this is an example, if you were to say, right, well, we're going to do something psychedelic. This is as psychedelic as Pentangle got. And if someone at the time said, right, I want to get stoned. I'm going to put on a Pentangle helmet. (laughs) It's not necessarily as ridiculous as it sounds because this song, it fits into what the psychedelic movement of the time was. But it's just one bow in their arsenal and it's really a lot of it is thanks to the sitar it's wonderful because as you say they're not trying to shoehorn it in it's just like let's see how this sounds uh, in the way that we play it they, yeah I, I doubt sincerely that they ever listened to a Ravi Shankar record to that point you know, nothing wrong with Ravi Shankar but no. that's not what they were aiming for it doesn't sound like a gimmick and in, in that way for me it's just organic it's basically a jazz waltz isn't it you know it's uh, but <laughs> yes yes it is it's chaos but never clunky yeah like especially once Terry's drumming picks up I mean like what you were saying before about him being the only drummer for Pentangle possible yeah. and this is evidence of that you're sort of saying right okay I hear what Bert's doing okay I'll let him do that I'll let him get away with that and he's just sort of playing this magnificent series of patterns on his mute snare drum that just he's gone from like being simple to something that's a lot more complex and with a band of lesser musicians this would be chaos but yeah, definitely but it never is it's if it is chaos it's organized chaos and yeah. it's just it's absolutely beautiful and it's dramatic towards the end once Jackie starts singing again after the mid-break sitar solo they pull it back a lot and then once she stops they come back with a little bit of the chaos it's never like at its greatest like it is in the solo part but they're building it up as they fade the song out and I just would have loved to have been there in the studio and that's the other thing I'm convinced that Sure, there would have been overdubs, but I'm confident that a lot of what we hear on the album was played live because that's just uh, the yeah. way how they worked. There's no other way for them to have done it. The overdubs that are like the sitar and the extra voices. I mean, for me, the genius move is just when you think that Jackie's voice is getting a little bit too much, like it's almost this is almost like eating too much sugar because she's overdubbed the voice and she's really tight with all her ornamentations, like mm-hmm. that that folk thing of Bert. I think it's two Berts, or it might be. I think it's just Bert overdubbing two voices comes in with a. Cam- Counterpoint, and it really kind of just roughs up the sugar a little bit. It's right towards the end. I think it might even just be in the last verse. And that to me is a real genius move. 
move. It's probably just a natural thing. They didn't need to do it. She could have carried it, but it just seems to give it a little bit of sawdust. Look, I mean, I'm sort of reluctant in a way to use the total as greater than the sum of the individual parts because that would sell them all individually short. But this really is a case where five people are in simpatico and each yeah. one of them is great. And yeah, Bert roughing it up a little bit and <laughs> Jackie's, that voice, I, I just adore it. And there's examples of her doing different things with her voice where the songs required on this album. Yeah. I mean, I, I know you say she came from the folk scene and she did, but she was really singing blues. The stuff she did on, from my memory on, on John's stuff were blues things and she was a more of a blues type singer but everybody was dabbling in all different things then i get the impression that she loved blues she could i won't say dabble she could do it but mm. i think that that folk voice sounds like a folk singer who could sing blues rather than the other way around i mean she she yeah. has a voice that's not at all like sandy denny's voice or no nothing like june table's voice sort of when you look at her with the hippie dress and the <laughs> that floppy hat you know, yeah <laughs> she is the flower child Yes, very iconic. She does sound like someone who had lived through listening to a lot of folk music growing up. I mean, I have found, I haven't read the biography that you were mentioning to me before we yeah. we started recording, but there was nothing in the CD booklets that indicated what she'd been listening to growing up. But I really get the strong impression that she was listening to a lot of folk music growing up. It wasn't just something that she said, oh, well, I'll give this a crack. Her folk voice sounds lived in as well as you know, having a great blues voice. She definitely does it well. That kind of embellished way of singing, as far as I know, it was a fairly modern conceit. I think if you listen to old recordings of like field recordings of people are singing very very straight if you listen to Shirley Collins that was probably more how people sang these songs originally as I go walking down Birmingham Street in my new scarlet jacket all neat and complete I think the embellishment comes from Irish music a lot from the Irish instruments and singing and it just sort of seeped into the English folk tradition which we almost think of it as part of the sound now that kind of real uh the embellished way of singing as being how it was hundreds of years ago so would you yeah no, i'm pretty sure it wasn't i think yeah. probably people because it was all about passing on the message broadsides and things like that and the old folks songs were almost like their version of gossip magazines <laughs> right, right i mean it never occurred to me but i mean i remember reading years ago in this lengthy article about john lee hooker and they were talking about the older blues songs which were basically message from one county to another county yeah saying, yeah. oh, there's been a flood here. Don't go, don't go. We're going to sing it in a song so you pay attention. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's just something of the of, of the culture. I mean, I'd be fascinated to know whether similar sort of things were done in non-English language speaking cultures. They probably did a similar sort of thing. I'm sure there were. I mean, a lot of cultures were wiped out, so it's hard to know. But, I mean, the way this music moved from India through the travelling people, gyps- oh, gypsies isn't the right word, you can't use that anymore, but Romani people took Indian music, and that's how a lot of of pipe music and fiddle music in Europe and the British Isles sounds modal and almost Middle Eastern. Yes. And, and I think that's where that, a lot of that embellishment comes from too, because you listen to Indians, the way they sing, there's a lot of that going on. So it endlessly fascinates me how music travels.
bottles and how much gets kept and how much gets discarded. Even when you sort of think about contemporary styles, it gets to be less about evolution and more about, right, what's the next thing? Bit of a shame, but what gets called nostalgia is not always nostalgia. It's just like, well, hang on, I wasn't ready to finish on that style of music. And Absolutely. Possibly explains, you know, like the contemporary, well, as of maybe 20 years ago, maybe the, the new approach to soul music which was basically retro soul music you know your amy winehouses and your daptone records and the like which were paying heavy tribute to 60s soul because they were saying well hang on you can't get to sweep this under the mat we still like it yeah that's the way it makes sense to play that music what are the, a lot of the um, classic soul artists started using drum machines and loops and things and samples it didn't really work because it made them work harder with their singing and it you know they couldn't react against the rhythm section so it, it all became a bit over done curse you 1980s <laughs> but you know i mean that's the thing about the new generation of folk musicians in britain even eliza carthy uh, people like that and even people coming after her they're not afraid to use laptops and loops because it, for some reason it seems to work with that music the atmosphere seems to work really well with folk music that where it might not necessarily work with soul music you can create a, there's some great new british artists who like laura marling and people like that who are yes, not afraid I've, I've heard some laura marling she's great yeah they're not afraid to use modern sounds because it's just part of their dna they they just think well why not who cares it doesn't have to be unaccompanied it doesn't have to be an acoustic guitar i mean the acoustic guitar was seen as an aberration in the folk scene for a while mccall hated it he hated the acoustic guitar he thought folk songs should be sung unaccompanied or or, or with a concertina thank god those people didn't take hold (laughs) (laughs) i wonder if anyone reminded pete seeger of that when he cut bob dylan off newport folk (laughs) yeah i mean logically you can play folk music on anything it's just a stupid concept to think that it has to be these traditional instruments that aren't even traditional the banjo i mean that's not traditional it's only a couple of hundred years old it's just crazy anyway back to that well okay so look this leads to a good question i was going to ask you because you mentioned already like a couple of contemporary folk artists do you think that basket of light could it drop today and be seen as sounding contemporary i mean i know that there's a lot of things that make it sound okay well the sitar that's what was happening of the day but a lot of folk music that you might sort of hear at the folk festivals or a lot of americana still Mm seems to dabble as you say in acoustic guitars and the like because this is not strictly speaking just folk there's a mixture of jazz rhythm section and, mm. and there's a lot of blues do you think that this album could drop today as a new album and find its community if it had never been heard before if it sounded exactly the same as it does now i'm not sure it's the use of a jazz rhythm section in a way i think it probably has more in common with astral weeks than a normal folk album because it's just got that kind of loose airy you know it's like saying would people react to astral weeks if it dropped today i'm not sure because in a way they're of their time and everything is of its time but i think if somebody could make something like this today but they'd they'd probably also use some modern sounds and then then of course it wouldn't sound the same now that is a fantastic call i hadn't actually considered that but yes you're right astral weeks is van morrison possibly attempting folk style compositions with the jazz rhythm section yeah so that's why i think basket of light they could almost i mean they came around out probably fairly close to each other i don't know if astrowitz would have influenced this well you're not going to find out anything from van (laughs) no the thing is about this album i think yes it does sound of its time and yet there's still something so fresh about it yeah for sure that i would think that if you were like a seasoned music listener in 2020 and this dropped across your desk or across your streaming service 
update, you'd still get excited about it. You wouldn't sort of think, oh, it will like what you were talking about before the, the hey, nonny, nonny crowd. Uh, <laughs> you'd listen to this and you'd think, wow, my folks never told me about this album. This is fantastic. And I'm going to explore this. Yeah, maybe not contemporary, but I think it would still be released today and sound fresh and exciting. And it'd give someone who'd never heard it before something to celebrate. It's not painfully of its time like Sgt. Pepper's is. I'm not sure if you drop something like that. One of those real iconic 60s albums. I don't think most of them wouldn't play today, aside from people recognising that they were good. They're just too of their time. But this one is, and there's enough rootsiness in it for it to work at any time, really. I'm sure there are young people every day discovering this stuff and getting something from it. Look, I mean, you've got songs on the album like The Hunting Song and mm. The Cuckoo, which certainly do sound like they are rooted in Old English folk. What you were talking about before, at least what our modern minds perceive as being like old English folk. Yeah. But then on the same album, and this is my case about how cohesive this is, despite there being so many different styles on the album. The opening song on the album, Light Flight, the theme from a TV show, Take Three Girls. Have you seen any episodes of this TV show? No, it was probably on after I left to come here. The whole thing is on YouTube, and I sort of said, hmm, I really must make the time to watch an episode, and I never did, so I don't know whether it's any good or not. I mean, like, I think I watched the first five minutes and thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll come back to that. The opening theme, actually, they use some different words than what they use in the song. I think they wanted to make the song on the album its own thing. Yeah. But they do change the words, which may have something more to do with the theme of the show. But apparently the producer of the show had said that Simon and Garfunkel had made Mrs. Robinson a big hit in The Graduate. And in mm. The Graduate, everyone was talking about that. Thought, well, who's a relatively folky band? Ah, who's this Pentangle? Yeah, we'll get them to write a song for this TV show. So I, I don't know whether Light Flight is the best thing about the show or not, but <laughs> uh, look, I'll eventually get around to watching it and seeing whether it's good in its own right. But it's certainly the only thing maybe that people remember will be Pentangle and not necessarily so much Take Three Girls. But I think it's really really an incredible album opener it does sound contemporary for its time and vibrant despite the time being primarily associated with psychedelia and blues based and prog rock bands but it's an album opener that represents neither what mainstream or counterculture rock were doing so i mean maybe this is something that they could take a direct influence from the band i mean it doesn't sound like the band but the band were sort of like neither trying to be 1800s canada nor 1969 Canada but it, I think this probably convinced them hey we can do this and apparently this is the song possibly by the association with Take Three Girls that got Pentangle into the UK charts yeah yeah it wasn't a huge hit but definitely charted this is a song that interests me really so much as a drummer yes I'm sure it does <laughs> just taking this apart I love taking apart things mathematically which mm. to some people may say 
say that, well, that's not looking at its artistic greatness, but I mean, what is Bach if not mathematical? He was writing compositions that were exercises for his students and say, right, this is how you're going to build up your technique. Yeah. Uh, and this is very much a technique song that just happens to work brilliantly as a great piece of music. You've got the bit at the start, the bit in the middle, and the, the bit at the end, which is this motif that's in 6 4 time. And then the verses and the choruses are all alternating verses 5 4 7 4. Mm. Now, we've already gone and discussed how brilliant these musicians were at keeping in sync with each other. You listen to the 5474. You're asking me what I thought about this as a 10-year-old kid. And I was just <laughs> a kid who was bashing his pots and pans. But the brilliance of this is that at the time, I didn't even know anything at that time about time signatures. No. I, I just heard this, yep, this works, this works, this works. And it wasn't until I grew a lot older that I hang on, what mm. are they doing there? And then yeah. I sort of start tapping out with my fingers and I worked out, oh my goodness, it's 5474, 5474. With lesser musicians, it could sound clunky and it never does. It just no. flows so beautifully. It's not that hard to play in tricky time signatures as long as you can count a little bit. But what's tricky is to make it sound natural. Look, as soon as I went behind the drum kit to play this, I thought, yes, I can do this rhythm, but hell, it sounds clunky as hell. I, <laughs> there's no way I'm ever going to get to play with a group of musicians who are going to keep me on long enough to make this sound natural. <laughs> but yes, can do it. But in my books, it sounds clunky. But I just love this. It's a beautiful, breezy song that says we can hope for better things and just try and be optimistic. This is definitely the glass is 90% full than the glass is 10% empty. If, if you put this record on in 1969 and this track came on it wouldn't sound that different to something like donovan i think donovan was putting out songs that were a little bit jazzy like sunshine superman sunshine came softly through my window today could have tripped out dc but i've changed my way things like that but i think danny and terry played on yeah, so that combination of acoustic instruments and, and jazzy rhythms wasn't revolutionary because Donovan was kind of doing it already in a much more pop folk kind of way. So, But it's it's when you get into that, that detail where I don't think Donovan would have been comfortable doing something in, with shifting time signatures like that. Mm. But I think the average listener probably wouldn't have, because it's done so well and it's so seamless, the average listener wouldn't have, unless they're trying to dance to it, I suppose. <laughs> and, and Terry Cox plays a large part in what drives that. That's the trick. I mean, they were used to, I think they've obviously had, they've been through all the Dave Brubeck in time stuff where every song is in an odd time signature and jazz players were very conversant with this kind of thing. I mean, the song's credited to Pentangle, isn't it? It's, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's credited to any one person. Uh, it makes you wonder how, how organically that song came to be. Look, I'm sure that this was a group of musicians who thought, look, I've written this thing, but you know, let's all share it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, they were like a commune. And it makes sense with this because 
it sounds so seamless that you think it must have been organically kind of thought up rather than written out by Bert or, or John and then shown to the band. It just doesn't sound like that kind of song to me. If Bert had come in with this riff, you can't imagine Bert saying to Terry, look, I want this very specific drum fill. I can't imagine him doing that. That is no. very much a Terry creation. And it's, yeah. it's a work of genius because not just because he makes it flow so well, but I think a drummer with a little less confidence would have played that and the rest of the band would say, what the hell are you doing? Don't play that, <laughs> Don't play that shit. That sounds amateur hour, but in Terry Cox's capable hands and he had a band of musicians who said, oh, yeah, yeah oh, that sounds okay. Keep playing that. Mm. And he made it work and it's beautiful. And uh, I mean, when I say that this song is mathematical, that is not an insult. It, it's something that just, uh, everything fits and yet it flows seamlessly without yeah. it sounding clunky. Yeah, it, it's one of those records or songs that just sounds effortless. The song's breezy, the lyric is positive and breezy, and the music absolutely matches it. In weird time signatures, it's just it's a bit of an achievement. The temptation would be to make it sound like the mummers and the poppers, you know, just <laughs> get get the vocals going and get a nice... You could have easily played that riff in straight time just by dropping a couple of notes, the guitar intro. It would have been easy for them to do that. Well, their harmonies work really well together, but they're not mamas and papas harmonies. No, no, no. Like the band's harmonies, you know, they're just, everybody's just seeing what they can. And it still sounds great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It wouldn't be a true folk album or even coming under the folk umbrella somewhere if there weren't any songs with death or infidelity. Now, whilst we're gone and say, right, well, this is an album of many visions. I guess already with Once I Had a Sweetheart was a song about, you know, my sweetheart, he has gone and left me and he's a cad. But you already sort of brought up House Carpenter earlier on, so I know that this is one that you wanted to focus on for a bit. What's your history with House Carpenter? Was this something that you knew from other artists because there's well, a ton of people who've yeah, done Yeah, no, it's this. been well, it's been done in all its various forms. It was the it was the Demon Lover before it left the UK, and that theme is all the way through folk music, but specifically this one. I, I think this is the first version I've heard. I've got a version of Dylan doing it, which is pretty good. Very similar, actually. I don't think there's a whole lot of difference. I often wonder where Pentangle got their version from. It must have been maybe Joan Baez or somebody did it. I, I'm not really sure. I should have looked into the history of it a bit more. I heard a contemporary version done by Natalie Merchant, and her voice is so good for this, for this sort of material. Really, really works. Yeah, well, she was definitely listening to that stuff. A lot of that 10,000 Maniac stuff is definitely, you can tell, they'd immersed themselves into a lot of this kind of stuff. My mate Jeff Lang does a pretty good version of it. Oh, wow. I never would have associated that Jeff would have done uh, this song. I have to look that up. Ah, uh, Jeff's really into folk music, this kind of stuff. I heard him do a version, I think, of Vincent Black Lightning. I guess there is that Richard Thompson connection. So Yeah, Richard and Bert, uh, I wrote, there is two main men, I think, as far as that kind of thing goes i mean obviously he's like a lot of people he draws from lots of different things he's of that age just a bit younger than 
and as a lot of it's his parents' record collection. He said first Ry Cooder and people like that just from his parents' records. But it's definitely a highlight. The Pentangle specialised in this kind of thing, the long ballad. Yes. I guess it's more prevalent on the first two albums and how they do them live. These songs, there's, I guess, the temptation to jam out on something. And you can imagine once I had a sweetheart done live could have been extrapolated out to 10 minutes or something like that. Oh, I guess the hunting song does go on for quite a while. But these songs, by and large, do tend to be more to the point, which is another thing that I find a great strength about the record. Yeah. Well, I think they were instinctively knew that if a song, the ballads especially, especially these child ballads or these kinds of things, you can't do 12 verses and then add lots of solos as well. It's just not going to work. Where you're going to put the solos, you're going to interrupt the story so that somebody can do a bit of a song. It just, it's not. They did Jack Orion, took the whole side. I think it's on um, reflection, I think. And that was great. But even that, they didn't embellish it too much. They did. I mean, it was all played beautifully, but not a lot of solos. They saved that for the more terse kind of songs. Yeah, well, we're looking at you dazed and confused. <laughs> 26 <laughs> minutes. Fuck. Well, there's not a lot going on there lyrically, so I suppose. No. So this song, for people who haven't heard it, is a song about a woman with two children married to a poor house carpenter who leaves them for a presumed better life with traditional renditions seem to indicate it's the devil. It's left open-ended here. It could have been a prince, could have been just a wealthy merchant. And she misses her children, but woe unto her, she goes down with the ship when it hits a rock and sinks. Mm. Um, and I think he, like she regrets the last verse of the song. She sings, I'm damned to eternal hell, misses her children and realizes that she did the wrong thing, following off wealth and fame and handsome young man who was going places. That song, for all that it sounds like ye old folk, and really that's the theme of a lot of old songs, death, and I could have married the king's son, but it seems very contemporary to me as well. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of these folk songs, it has consequences. Every situation seems to have a consequence, which I guess was their way of not preaching, but telling a moral tale. I can't think of any of these big ballads where anybody comes out of it well. There's definitely a diabolic element to this lover, even if it's not specifically. It's certainly the demon lover, which the song springs from, that there's a bit more of a suggestion that it might the person might have sprung up from the pits of hell. Yeah. Yes, yes. As a temptation. Just coming back to individual contributions on this song, I mean, I know that we've already gone and said about how much that the total greater than the sum of the individual parts, and I hate mm. that expression for this, but really to give praise where it's due, once again with John Renborn's sitar giving it some sense of menace mm. and some sense of regret. But I think the hero of the song for me is in the vocals with both Jackie's voice sounds absolutely chilling and she's sort of resigned to her fate. I mean, we've got Bert Yarch's singing and I don't think we've said much about it. We'll come to him in a minute. There's no one in the world who sings like Bert Yarch. No, great singer. He never thought he was. He's not really, when you see the list of the great singers, he's never usually in there. But <laughs> That's to other people's stupidity because to, to me, he is one of the truly all-time great singers it's not a trained voice but when you think about it there's a lot of fantastic singers out there who aren't classically or trained in a contemporary sense in fact some of those people are the ones who don't interest me that much this no that's right it just sounds like i'm opening up my mouth and this is what's going to come out it's authentic it's not raw 
and mm. it's not precise. It's just, ah, oh, he's doing what he's doing. And on, on this song, yeah, once again, he and Jackie, they're singing as much maybe as much as John Renborn's sitar playing other real heroes. Danny is doing his part, and I think we got Terry playing hand drums on this, but he's playing it like a rock drummer more than anything else. But it just all works together so well, telling an old story and making it sound contemporary. I don't think that the be-all and end-all of everything should be that it sounds contemporary. But I think for anyone who thinks that it does, we'll say, right, well, here's something that should please you as much as it pleases us, and we dare you to say otherwise. Maybe a better word is timeless. It could kind of sit anywhere, and it doesn't matter when it was recorded. I mean, you can listen to you know, Louis Armstrong's Hot Fives and Hot Sevens and say that they're, they might be of their time, but they still should move you. talk a little bit about Bert Yarch. I mean, we've spoken yeah. about the individual musicians at the start of this when we were talking about the history and what led up to them. But for a group where every member was extremely important, Bert Yarch, I don't want to say stood out because they were all great, but yeah. at least in the sense that Bert had gone and released some albums that had some attention to them. And in the latter years, he was the one who was still putting out regular albums all yeah. the time. When he came to play in Australia in the 90s, all the flyers were making very sure that the praise that they gave on the fly to sell him, in case you'd never heard of him, was that Johnny Marr and Neil Young and Jimmy Page were yeah. all huge fans. Now, we as big music fans don't necessarily need the endorsement from other musicians. We just listen to what we listen to. But I think it's saying something that these people who are revered by a lot of the music listening community are saying, wow, you like us? Listen, shut up and sit down and listen to a Bert Yanch record. I don't hear much of Bert's style of playing in what Johnny Marr necessarily did, or certainly what in Jimmy Page did, maybe in Bronya Orr, maybe mm. stylistically there. But certainly Neil Young as an acoustic player, definitely. I think there's moments where he's not sticking to any... No time signature is going to yeah. shoehorn him in. Yeah, they're very similar characters. Yeah, so that song on on the beach, Ambulance Blues, is a, pretty much a lift of Needle of Death, which is one of Bert's earliest songs that got him attention. When sadness fills your heart And sorrow hides the longing to be free when things go wrong each day You fix your mind to escape your misery it's pretty much a note for note, I suppose, especially the guitar picking part. Not not so much the melody, although it gets pretty close. I wonder if Bert ever played with a harmonica. I'd love to hear that. I don't think I've heard anything where he did, but I'd be interested to know whether he did do. I'm sure he did. He definitely used Duffy Power on harmonica on a few things. Not so much Bert playing. I think Bert avoided that because he was already getting, especially with the first and second albums, he was getting compared to Dylan a lot. But I think he avoided it for that reason. Mm. But Bert's been ripped off by a lot of these people who 
listed as influences that they've kind of ripped him off a lot i mean uh, back to the old house from the smiths that's a real burt style song and and jimmy page is notorious i mean uh, there's a song well, he on ripped off everyone yeah he did i mean you know he ripped off people who he i don't know who he thought wouldn't kind of come back at him and burt would never sue anybody he was just not that kind of guy black mountain side on the first led zeppelin album is black water side from burt's second album and white summer is a bit of a combination of david graham and burt jan stuff brand new stuff yeah but brand new stuff is the wagoner's lad basically which is a tr- traditional song but not the way burt played it complete ripoff and i, I think burt just saw it as for, just music moving on not even thinking about the fact that jimmy page might make a lot of money from these things he didn't care anyway and that says a lot more for burt than it does for jimmy page i think a beatnik didn't care about those kinds of things but you know he, there's never been anybody like him before or after there's been people who've kind of tried but he's just so mercurial and when he sings those old folk songs it's totally convincing he's in the songs uh, without making a big show of it just in, lives in those songs one name that we haven't mentioned which surprised me that comes up in the Burt Young story is Mike Nesmith like I'm familiar with about you know, half a dozen Burt Young solo albums the most celebrated one or certainly the most famous one anyway is LA Turnaround an album from 72 73 and Michael Nesmith is producer on that album and he's even got him playing on it the slide guitar play from the first national band Red Roads and it makes complete sense like the last few years I've become a huge fan of Mike Nesmith's first national band we've been speaking a lot about folk sound and the Appalachian sound mm. but here there's something of the what was then the country rock sound that fits in very well on Bert's own album you know with Mike Nesmith being there certainly it's not Mike sort of pushing his way onto a Bert album it's probably Bert saying you know I like what you do hey can you yeah. bring some of that to me I'm sure there were big mutual admirers Fresh as a sweet like a high stepping pony trotting and prancing as she's so yeah, I think Bert was open to anything, really. It was it would have been new for him, and he was probably always looking for something new. It's a beautiful-sounding record. I have it on vinyl. And there were a couple around that time where the production is just that lovely, warm 70s kind of sound. And I don't, I don't think Mike got in the way of Bert's thing too much. I think Bert, Bert was enough into American music where it was fairly seamless. I mean, he was well and truly into his songwriting then, so he wasn't doing a lot of traditional stuff, or I don't think there's any on there, really. It's just Bert's songs, which were particular to him, just like Neil Young's songs. Are. I mean, there are certain Burt tropes that are, just keep on appearing that are there for him alone. The Burt tropes, as you call, come back to what I said earlier on in the show about having that very percussive thumb pulling away from the string and letting it come back. That's what I understand is the claw hammer sound. And he does that over, I think, just about every solo recording I've heard of him. And that's just, once again, no one playing quite like him as consistently as he does. I mean, other people sort of do that, of course, but that is really what I would call the Burt sound. And nice segue back to Basket of Light, one of the highlights 
on that album is Train Song, which makes good use of that claw hammer technique. That's the way how you sort of know, right, which one is Bert and which one is John when listening. A lot of two guitarist bands, I'm not trained well enough to be able to work out right who's doing what here. But I'm almost sure that the heavy plucked stuff is Bert's. The rest is John. For me, I think maybe apart from once I had a sweetheart, Train Song is the highlight of yeah. the album for me. And I just want to give another shout out for a moment to Shell Tell Me. We were talking before about how there's some live TV work of Pentangle. And I think the most famous one out there might be like a BBC recording. It'd be 25 to 30 minutes of them all sitting around and playing some stuff. And I reckon it must be from just before, just after the release, A Basket of Light. There's a couple of non-basket tunes, but no tunes beyond that. And the BBC special opens up with them performing Train Song. Yeah. And the end of the song on the record has Danny Thompson playing the double bass in such a way that it sounds like the steam from a steam engine into the into the station. On the live version of the BBC, I mean, look, it's great because it's Danny Thompson. So I'm not going to bitch. I'm not going to complain. But what makes Shell tell me a hero of the record is the reverb that he does, probably the microphone placement near the wood of the double bass. And there's just something that makes it sound so creepy. And as the band, as they get into the coda where Bert and John pull away, you get Terry and Danny sort of playing their rhythm. And it's almost like it's not formally composed. They're just... They're waiting for the other one to finish. And then it's just Danny playing his double bass. If it hadn't been for Shell Talmy's production, it would have still sounded great because yeah. it's Danny Thompson. But that reverberancy, that mm. echo of the train coming into the station, Shell Talmy is as much a hero as Danny Thompson is for the sound of this song on the record. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I love the whole thing of the songs kind of pretty well straight. There's a lot of playing with time on this album. It's, it's one of the kind of features of it, really. It must have been what they were kind of into at the time but you know Jackie's parts is, is, it's almost like three over four triplets over four it's, it's a bit unsettling until you kind of get used to it it's almost menacing in a way yeah that's right yeah it's almost like saying cop this <laughs> it's just, yeah, yeah. something something weird's going on here they're very insistent in a way unfolk like really if you, uh, for whatever you think folk music is it's that kind of just insistent rhythm and Bert telling his story. And Jackie's almost like a, a horn section in a way. Well, of course, she's making her voice into an instrument with that. And she doesn't sound like she does on Once I Had a Sweetheart or The Cuckoo. That's folk Jackie. Oh, The Cuckoo, she's a pretty bird. She sings as she She tell of no lies 
This is hippie psychedelic Jackie. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, slightly bluesy, jazzy. I think that and Light Light are my two favorites on this album. Probably because they both play with time a little bit. It's all great. Whenever I play albums, I play. I just play them. I don't have the uh, you know patience to pick out songs on records and play them. Yeah, you see. <laughs> It's, it's easy to do that with modern formats, but I just put them on and go with them. Maybe just one side sometimes, but generally I play the whole thing. Still in that world. <laughs> no, very much. You could probably also go and put together something like a Spotify playlist of songs about trains that sound like trains. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I was trying to think the other day about this because, you know, this song has that smoke at the end. Really, really psychedelic, but it's a psychedelic train song. And I was sort of thinking, well, Louis Jordan's Choo Choo Chaboogie yeah. sort of has that rhythm element that makes it sound like the train's going up and down the track and Mystery Train by Elvis, yeah, yeah. of course. And they'll try to make it sound the same, don't they? They do. And look, this is one which I don't know whether you like it or not. It may sort of bring back a uh, memory, but I actually sort of like this. Do you remember that band from, I think they were the early 90s, The Sharp, and they had a song called Train of Thought. Oh, I do remember that, yeah. I think they're sort of mocked a lot because of the skivvies and all that, and they're sort of forgotten. But look, I didn't mind them. Not a huge priority for me, but on this song with the woohoo is probably the the laziest train song cliche (laughs) that you could pull. But this song, it really does sort of bring a train to mind, but it's more through their arrangement, their excellent musicianship. And as I said at the end with Shel Talmy's production, rather than deliberately trying to sound like a train with Danny and Terry doing what they're doing yeah rhythmically it's not obtrusive it's not here listen to us this is a train song it's just even if the lyrics weren't about a train that would so completely work but it's just like oh yeah this does sound like a train chattling down on a hundred year old track When you're on a train like that, there isn't just one rhythm. It's a massive piece of machinery. So that's what's clever about that too, because yeah, a train does have a certain rhythm, but there's other things going on as well. When you sit on a train, there's usually polyrhythms going on. <laughs> so it's it, it's quite clever in that way. We've gone and spoken for quite a fair while about a few of our favourite cuts on this album. We haven't actually sort of gone and covered the whole album. I mean, that's not the purpose of shows. No. Like this is just mainly to introduce people to an album that we love and what makes it so really wonderfully great, and then they should go and explore it more for themselves. But as a final thing, is there a song that we haven't covered yet that is a good illustration of what makes this band and this album so wonderful to you? Well, no, I think we've covered the songs that do that, but I'd also like to point out, it's a song that's always intriguing me anyway, Sally Go Around the Roses. Sally Go It's a girl group song from the early 60s, but as girl group songs go, it's bloody weird. If you listen to the original, it doesn't sound like any other girl group song you've ever heard. Like 
nothing on Motown, that's for sure. No, no, not even the Bill Spector thing. I mean, they're all lumped together, but and they shouldn't be. But there's a certain sound. But Sally Go Around the Roses is kind of mysterious, and it sort of sounds like a folk song anyway. There's no difference to my ears, really, in the Jaynette's original version to the Pentangle version, except no. maybe that John Renborn does a really wonderful guitar solo in the middle. about the guitars but it's certainly not the chords and the vo- and all the vocals and stuff and I think actually John sings this and he's no Bert Jansch as far as vocals go but I think it's the only song he actually really does a lead vocal on which is it's a girl group song but the main verse, verse is John him and, uh, him and Jackie yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 but, you know, it's just an interesting, the fact that their ears were pricked up enough to take that song. Maybe somebody in the band really liked it. Um, I just wanted to do it. I think I read that this was a favourite song of John's. And so yeah. he proposed it and they said, yeah, sure, let's do it. Tim Buckley did a version of it too. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, it's on one of his later albums that nobody likes. I think, you know, like uh, <laughs> uh, Look at the Fool or some, something like one of those albums. It's not one of those revolutionary songs on the record, but I think, it, I think they were able to turn it into a pentangle song without much trouble because it was a kind of a mysterious song to start with. That comes after Hunting Song, which is fairly long and intense. And they thought, yeah. well, let's just give your ears a break for a bit. You're right. It's not necessarily the most important song on the album, but it's a little yeah. bit more than fluff, yeah, though, as sure. well. It is a really cool little song. I like the fact that it introduced this different side to what Pentangle could do. I sort of like to think that lyrically as well, we have as a contrast between Once I Had a Sweetheart and House Carpenter, which are both songs of Woe Is Me. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've lost my love whereas this is to me more of a song of lust and really where you have jackie's song in the bridge in train song sounds very lustful i don't think you know train song is a metaphor for sex no uh, but this song i think delivers in terms of the lust yeah on this album i just love her voice on this john delivers just like an incredible guitar solo that if it had been done on an electric with a bigger band would be celebrating it Mm. now in the mainstream nowadays (laughs) yeah well they never did as far as sally goes they never did that again. They never took a popular song. It was very much an anomaly for them. They had, well, how many more albums did they do after this? It wasn't that many anyway, was it? They did. I think another three albums. Yeah, Solomon Seal, Reflection, and there was another one. I can't remember. Anyway, they went a little bit more kind of not mainstream, not more normal. They sort of didn't do a lot of crazy stuff. It's almost like they were all backing each other up. Like, almost like the Beatles. They became solo artists who would back each other up. Solomon Seal. They're great albums. I mean, I love the sound of Reflection. It's beautifully produced. This is probably the peak on the bell curve. I think so, yeah. yeah. I love the first and second albums. This is the best one. And I'll stuff off, all, off the other ones. I think they just worked too hard. I think that Joe Lustig just worked them to death and they just had enough. I still don't think that there's anything like a bad Pentangle album. It's just the lofty heights that this one set. There's stuff on all of them that I like. But this one, there's, uh, there's nothing on it that I don't like at all. In fact, they're just that kind of band, really. They were kind of cursed with a good taste. <laughs> <laughs> I did get hold of a live album that they put out in the 2000s. As you were saying, you know, Jackie had gone and put together a band called you know, well, Jackie McShee's Pentangle. But they got, like, I think, was it for the, whatever it was, the 40th anniversary of something. They had 
had one more series of live concerts might have played at the Royal Albert Hall. I'm not sure if that's like a radio broadcast or something like that, but it has like all of that original lineup playing. And they're all masterful musicians, but they're not like in their 20s anymore. We're suffering from an ill health anyway. Bert might have passed away maybe two years later or something like that, or maybe it was John. They sort of died in quite close proximity to each other. Yeah, Terry was quite a bit older than the rest of them too. Well, Terry's still with us. Oh, I thought he he died. No, Terry's still with us. Well, this is a good segue. He got to see Roland Sutherland, who we are now going to present for your listening pleasure. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You like my segue? The two of us have gone and harped on for quite a fair bit of time. We'll come back at the end of the show. What I'm going to present to your listeners now is a discussion which I had with Roland Sutherland a few weeks ago, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, but just in case you forgot, he's a jazz flautist who put on this show at London Jazz Festival back in November of 2019 in tribute to Pentangle's Basket of Light. And we had Danny, Terry and Jackie all came to the show and he got their Solomon seal of approval. You see what I did there? <laughs> Look, he said on the one hand, well, you'll get to hear him talk about whether he was nervous or not. Have a listen for the next half hour. It's a really fascinating conversation. I'm honoured that he came onto the show and it was just a lovely, lovely guy. So hear what he has to say about Pentangle, but his own background as a jazz musician, what it influenced him and how he went from that to Pentangle. And then we'll be back at the end of the show just to wrap up and talk about what's happening next month. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 134. Trees and grass and bushes green again Sky so blue I don't remember where The cold days of winter took the sun away but the springtime promises all came Hello, true. welcome back to episode 134 of Love That Album Podcast. On the other end of a Skype connection, I have a man who has a link with Pentangle. And as you've been listening to now, Pentangle and their album Basket of Light is our feature album discussion for this episode. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Professor Roland Sutherland. Welcome to the show, Roland. Hi, thanks a lot, Maurice. It's great to be on the show and thanks for the invite. Thank you very much for being a part of it. Look, before we sort of go to discussing your link to Pentangle and the Pentangle project you've been working on, I just wanted to discuss a little bit about your background. Now, you've been leading and playing in jazz ensembles and orchestras and Latin groups and working as a session musician for people like George Benson, Joss Stone, and I only just discovered that you covered with Mark Armand, one of my very, very favorite Procol Harum tracks in uh, A Salty Dog. That was really oh, beautiful. Okay. Really beautiful to listen to. <laughs> All hands on deck We're all afloat I heard the captain cry Explore What were your earliest musical memories? Did you grow up in a home with that much musical diversity? Well, you know, I grew up in a Caribbean family household mm-hmm. and so music that you typically would hear in that kind of household is, is is like very typical of the Caribbean. So there'd be country and Western music and there'd be soul and reggae, a variety of musics like that, gospel. And my parents, you know, they're religious. So um, there was a lot of Jim Reeves as well. Yeah, that was typical of a lot of uh, 
um, Caribbean households to um, grow up with those type of musics. So there wasn't really any necessary um, classical music being played or jazz as such. But I'm going back to when I was like three, four, five years old. <laughs> right. uh, so a little bit later on, I, I was just so curious about music. I mean, music just did something to me from that very early age. And so I kind of went on my own path. I took what I had from my you know, dad's record collection with me and then started exploring. I was having piano lessons from about six or seven years old. And that's when I really got into um, classical music and jazz. At what stage did you pick up the flute? You know, I was on the piano for about what, two, three years, and then it, it kind of stopped. And so it wasn't until I got to secondary school, 11, 12 years old, and then um, I picked up the flute then. Mm. Uh, I, I kind of knew that I wanted to play a wind instrument because prior to um, joining my secondary school, I had an uncle from St. Vincent and the Grenadines is, is where my folks are from. So I'm, I'm half St. Vincentian. Mm -hmm. An uncle had come over you know, to visit and it just so happened he had a bamboo flute in his bag and it was one he had made himself. And I uh, you know, I gave it a try and I seemed to already be getting tunes out of it. So I was sort of feeling that could be my destiny. So who were you listening to at the time? Were there any particular flautists who were really exciting you? Were you listening to Herbie Mann, say, for instance? <laughs> Funnily enough, one of my sister's early boyfriends, he was from the States and he gave me a Herbie Mann album as a okay, present right. when it was my birthday. <laughs> yeah, that probably had a, a bit of an influence. But in the main, I would say it was Hubert Laws. originally from Chicago and funnily enough back then he, he was involved in classical music quite a lot as well as jazz mm. and I think he even got invited to join the Chicago Symphony Orchestra his teacher was uh, Donald Peck who's the principal flute of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra at the time he was happy to freelance with them I think and he said he wanted to focus on his solo career in jazz and uh, he ended up not playing the saxophone so much and just devoted himself to um, playing the flute so yeah I would say on the jazz front Hubert Laws has been a big influence and then also on the classical side I would say it was James Galway the Irish flautist something of a superstar i think back in the 80s definitely definitely yeah he took the uk by storm he became a household name really rapidly because he was given a, a tv series he had his own show and he was just such a, a character he was so very charming had a great wit and people really grew to him and his, his show became really popular and he put a huge variety of things on you know he'd, he'd have like traditional irish music and you do a lot of pop music as well uh, you know a lot of what they call middle of the road, I suppose now. Yep. And, um, <laughs> you know, because he had a big hit with um, John Denver's um, song, Annie Song. Okay. He had, a, he had a massive hit. You know, he went high in the charts and he was like the first classical musician to do so um, in a long while, I think, or, or, or not many classical musicians had achieved that. That really heightened his popularity. Just watching his um, series, he really drew me to the flute even more. So a combination of him and, and Hubert Laws did a trick, really, and then it, uh, it just 
just kept growing, kept developing. I was making more and more discoveries about players and about music. Since I originally contacted you, I've had a chance to listen to a little bit, certainly not as much as I'd have liked of your own music. And one of the albums which I found myself really drawn to was an album called Coast to Coast. The ensemble was called Mistura. That's um, right, yeah, Mistura. That had a very, very strong Latin influence. Who were your go-to artists? It would take me probably a week to go through all of them. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even kidding. Seriously, I absorbed just so much stuff from a wide variety of musics from Latin America. But in the main, I would say I was even more drawn to Brazilian music, a bit more than general Latin music. I spent a lot of time just going through a lot of the albums by Aieto, Aieto Moreira, mm-hmm. who's this phenomenal percussionist. You know, he obviously had a deep interest in jazz, but also often what he did was a lot of folkloric and Brazilian musics, he'd adapt that to his way of jazz. He'd combine the two, especially like the northeastern Brazilian music is very potent it's, it's quite folk-like and it's very earthy and sometimes you would vocalise some of the traditional stuff that you'd hear with um, North and Eastern uh, Brazilian music so a lot of that you know you'd hear in his own jazz it wasn't necessarily a massive jazz scene in Brazil and he kind of ended up going to the States and that was it he, he just got completely <laughs> booked up by um, loads of renowned artists there uh, including Miles Davis he played with Miles Davis for a while from the late 60s it's a whole gamut of huge names who he, he performed with, you know, Chick Corea. The first two albums of Return to Forever, there's Hayato yes. in there. You know, that big famous concert that Miles Davis did at Isle of Wight, he's playing on that. There's film footage of that. Mm. So, yeah, I was really gripped by his music. It's also Domon Romeo, and he's also a Brazilian percussionist. And he also focused a lot on the folkloric, kind of like Brazilian stuff. But he, he just had a slightly different style, and he played drum kit a lot as well as percussion. You know, Aieto played drum kit as well. But it's funny, Aieto got there before Donald Romeo, you know, regarding the States. But if there were certain things that Aieto couldn't do, he'd get them to book Donald Romeo. <laughs> so Donald Romeo um, went on to perform with Weather Report in the early days of Weather Report yep. as well. It seems like there was a strong Brazilian or Latin influence in general on uh, that jazz fusion scene of the 70s. Exactly. The return definitely. to forever, as you said, and a lot of Al Demiola's solo work as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. The, influence was massive earth wind and fire was was gripped by mm. you know uh, they were also really into milton nascimento and um wayne shorter mm. did albums with him and, and, and milton's an uh, incredible vocalist had a very high range i mean he could soar right up there it's very ethereal sound and he's an incredible singer songwriter it started with them and just kept growing you know sergio menges as well obviously yes. like brazil 66 with her and obviously um jobim and Jao gilberto that's where it started out and it just, just kept growing. Those are the kings and queens. Flora Purin, not forgetting Flora Purin, oh, Ayato's yes. wife. Wow. Right? Because they obviously both did return to forever together with um, Chick Corea. 
So I was approached by people who were familiar with my arranging. So I was approached by um, Sirius, which is one of the biggest jazz promoters in Europe, to do arrangements of what well, was actually meant to be, you know, Fairport conventions, Lace and Leaf. But <laughs> I kind of have had a, a steep love of Pentangle, so I pull it to them. Look, would you mind if I were to? I mean, no offense, Fairport convention, because they were a fantastic folk band. In fact, they might still be going now. They are. I think Britain's answer to the Grateful Dead or something like that. <laughs> An ongoing institution. Ex-members come back and do it yeah. every August. The Cropperty Festival, which is Fairport's own festival. I had a deeper love for Pentangle's music, especially the early days of Pentangle. What led you to listen to those early albums? When did you discover them? Now, that's a funny story as well. I'd kind of lightly been listening to folk music. Obviously, I was a bit more focused on jazz and on Western music and, and classical music because I was performing those kind of things a lot. It depends how you look at folk because the certain African music I played and Brazilian music, and some might look at that as folk, whereas I was looking at it as jazz. I wouldn't say I was out and out performing recognised folk bands, shall we say. But from time to time, you know, I'd, I'd likely listen to certain things, especially Steel Life Spank. I love their arrangements, their performance. It's a very engaging band. They were pretty accessible as well. So I suppose the Steel Ice Band and Mike Oldfield, off the folk scene here, they were the ones I was kind of like a bit more, paying more attention to. And then I bought my place in North London. And going back, this must be, what, 20... 5 or 26 years ago one of the neighbours in the street you know invited me around for tea we were just having a chat and then he knew I was a musician so we started talking music and that and he said oh well, you know, have a listen to this and he was playing me some pentangle and I thought I couldn't speak. <laughs> I was, was kind of like spellbound. Yep. I'm serious. I was absolutely spellbound. I was like, what am I hearing? This is incredible. And it sounded like really celestial, really serial, really magical, at times haunting. And I hadn't really come across anything as deep as that in folk mm. music. You know, I'd heard things sort of similar or closer, but not quite there like that. And it was like being like literally taken into this fantasy land, this other world. And that was it. I was gripped from that moment. I'm not exaggerating. Every night I was playing their stuff for at least a couple of years. I've been listening to their stuff. I was just gripped. It started from that, really. That's why straight away I said I'd like to arrange something by Pentangle. And then, <laughs> lo and behold, I was just having to listen to the music again. And, and the one that I kind of felt where all the tracks I felt I could really do something with this. And which every single track just absolutely, you know, hit me. It just happened to be Basket of Light. And then when I checked a bit of background to Basket of Light, I saw that it was literally the 50th year from when it was released. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it tied in quite well because it was the same case with um, Nathan Neath. It, it would have been the 50th year of the anniversary of the release of that album. So kind I, of worked out well. <laughs> but I imagine that Legion Leaf would have been, I don't know, maybe a little bit more challenging to interpret in a jazz idiom because Basket of Light, we basically had a jazz rhythm section. Mm -hmm. Exactly. With a exactly. blues guitarist and a bunch Exactly. Of uh, exactly. Uh, it lent itself well. Oh, the cuckoo is a pretty bird. She sings as she flies. She brings out good tidings. She tells no lies. 
This was the London, EFG London Jazz Festival. We were invited to present this work before, so and it was, you know it was a closing night of that. So it was fitting that we were doing like jazz rendition of the whole album. But like you say, there's already elements of jazz there anyway, and blues is right up our street. Did Jackie McShee and Danny Thompson and Terry Cox actually get in contact with you, or you in contact with them before you started putting the project together? There's a, a friend of mine and um, also Orphy Robinson because like. A few, a few years ago, um, Alfie Robinson had put a band together, basically called it Astral Weeks. So it was after um, the album by um, Van Morrison. Mm. We'd been gigging with that band. I was a person who was like helping him out kind of thing, putting things on and stuff. He was helping me out, you know, with this basket of light and sort of like contacting um, Sirius on my behalf as well and things like that. That's how that kind of worked out. Um, Colm is his name. It's been um, ever so helpful. He made contact with Danny Thompson's management just so that they were aware that we were doing this thing, paying homage to it, basically. So he contacted Danny Thompson's people and also he contacted Jackie McShane. Basically, he said at the time, yeah, we're free, we'd love to come to you. And then it turned out, yeah, they were free and they, they came down. I was moved, but, you know, they were really touched that we took, you know, such interest in their music. And to them, they felt, you know, <laughs> You'd obviously put a lot of effort into this. They were highly complimentary about the arrangements and the performance. Was it a bit nerve-wracking for you? Not all the songs are originals, of course, although some of them Yeah, are, that's but, right. But yeah. you're basically paying tribute to the work that they had done. Really big shoes to step into because they're arranged together as a band. And the calibre of players there in that band is huge. It's ginormous. Yeah, there were big shoes to step into. But I just think because of the experiences I've had, and in all the different areas that I've gone into, and I've, I've been fortunate to perform with a lot of household names around the world, you know, that sort of thing gives you a lot of courage and strength. And so it was a mouth-watering prospect, you know, to be able to, you know, arrange the music of an album that I dearly love. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. in that sense, that sort of carries you, you know, you, you don't really worry too much. Obviously, you'd want them to like what you come out with, but yeah, it was just a joy to be able to perform it, to air it, and, and it was great that we were in there presence yeah i mean jackie met she actually said uh, it was perfect <laughs> that was really encouraging it's huge praise yeah I, I was really touched by it and, and she really remarked about a vocalist as well may mckenna uh, originally from scotland she used to sing with a folk band a scottish folk band called contraband mm-hmm. in the 70s and does a lot of arranging and, and backing vocals and, and singing with big artists in the pop world the thing is she had a big folk background as well so she did a wonderful job singing a lot of the stuff that jackie mcshee was singing and yeah it was uh, like I said a hand-picked band so there's quite a few big jazz players in the band well the one name that I recognised from the list of players was Alec Dankworth and it was oh yeah the name Dankworth I thought oh my <laughs> goodness the son of John and Cleo Lane oh, wow that's jazz royalty right there definitely jazz royalty there yeah he's a joy to play with I mean I've actually been performing with him for well over 30 years I think in different settings still not a lot of people realise he actually is one of the most versatile bass players I've ever come across. There was African bands that I was playing with that I used to play any time they needed a, a bass player I'd suggest Alec and Alec was right in there you know he really got into the grooves really extremely well. Same with like I had a band with Wolfie Robinson called Creative Force and we had a lot of like reggae influences and things like that. He was right in there you know mm. he 
was like playing some dub and stuff and ska and things like that. He's very, very versatile and he's got a fantastic feel, a great sound. He's so musical. So uh, yeah, that was a real pleasure having him in the band. I had the good fortune to be able to listen to some of the tunes that you performed as part of this Basket of Light project. So I noticed there was a great contrast between stylistically how you approached a couple of tunes like Springtime Promises and Sally Go Around the Roses to something like Like Wake Dirge. So Like Wake Dirge on the original album, it sounds like we're listening to it in the cathedral, maybe uh, the arrangement that a, a group of monks might be singing mm. if they were doing it in harmony. Your version was creepy, and I mean that in a good way. <laughs> it, 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 it sounded like it belonged in a 1970s horror movie, and <laughs> I, trust me, I mean that as the highest Oh, no, no. I know where you're coming from with that. I can imagine that it reach you in that way, yeah. So what I want to know is, just talking about that tune for a moment, how did you approach rearranging any of these? Did you sort of say, right, well, I'm going to take my cue off the lyric and see what the lyric says to me, and then I'll work around the music? Or was it something else? How did you approach arranging Like Wake Dirge? I'm kind of feeling where they probably were coming from with the music and what they imbued into the music. I'm feeling what was probably like the foundation of those kind of things or was the root of it. I'm taking that on board. You could say I kind of pull it into my own perspective and my own experiences and the things that, you know, that I've been involved with. You know, just bringing it to a bit more modern times, I guess, in, in the sense that things I grew up with, especially things that I've been involved in the last 10 15, 20 years. And so what I did was some of the music, when you're taking the feel, you feel that it relates to some certain things that I was involved in. So for instance, in the hunting song, sorry, I didn't get to give you a version of that, what we did. Basically, when you listen to it, and if you break it down, you know, what I did with it, you'll recognize like hip hop, for instance. Oh, wow. Hip hop beats and things like that. Because when you listen to the original, you can actually feel that vibe within what they do. I would say um, the underpinning feel in, in the range when I did it, it's basically hip hop. And then in um, House Carpenter. Well, I once couldn't marry the king's first son. And the fine young man was he. But now I'm married to a house carpenter. And the nice young man is he. I used to play with something called the London Afro Block, which is an Afro Block with Blockers Afros. And that's like one of the typical types of street bands that you have in Salvador, Bahia, and where they play a lot of African Brazilian music. Yes. And the form of music is typically known as samba reggae. So I played in a band in the UK, which was basically the first Afro Block in Europe to form. And we were influenced by one of the, the big bands from Bahia called Olodum. So um, we played a lot of their kind of like inspired influence. 
reference music. So funny enough, listening to House Carpenter now, I know it sounds weird at first because you know there's banjo playing, so yes. you've got a deep south, <laughs> American deep south, and then there's a sitar playing That's as right, well. Yeah. You know, which gives it that eastern kind of like feels. When you listen to the groove and you feel the vibe of it and the momentum, because there's a momentum to it, and it feels like it's building and building and growing and growing. And I, I had a strong feeling of the samba reggae under there so um, that's the underlying feel in the arrangement that I did and I sort of took it into that context where there's a sort of yeah samba reggae feel to it and so it's got an earthy sort of Brazilian um, feel behind it the other elements of it are quite similar to what Bentang would do so it's, uh, that was a kind of marriage I did there and with like weight um, you might be surprised to hear this <laughs> but there's a lot of kind of like foreboding I would say yes in, in that music and, um, and it's very eerie I felt so we went all out basically there's a lot of free improvisation but using certain sounds and certain textures so for instance Ansiman Biswas who I mentioned earlier he was playing in the Love Supreme inspired right. piece I wrote he was performing in, in what you heard and he was playing a water phone yes, you know those okay. yeah yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. they look like chandeliers and they're filled with water <laughs> and, and he's bowing it with I don't know a violin bow or something yep. and it creates that really eerie sound it's, it's, it's almost as if you listen to whales in the ocean and then I combine that with some um, extended techniques on the flute this is just the opening so that you get that misty wind blowing haziness just keeps growing but the drums the kind of drum feel that i was putting in there is it basically jamaican basis yeah if, if you listen really carefully it's basically um a feel where if you listen to rastafarian chant there's a certain drum beat you'll hear it sounds like a heartbeat yep. and there's also like you'll hear the naibingi drum often and those are like this it's like just sounds like improvised drumming very rhythmic very syncopated and with gaps in between you know so that's the kind of underpinning feel underneath it and momentum gathers on that and you've got this kind of like tutu like feel you know miles davis tutu like feel on the mm -hmm. bass <laughs> which um even brings out furthermore the foreboding so my guess that it would sound good in a horror film wasn't far off no no it was, it's, it's definitely very eerie yeah, yeah. definitely <laughs> chilling i guess i mean that was the word that was used a lot after right. the concert so that's just to give you an idea of how i went about it certain things you know, they ping on something inside you, or you suddenly hear or feel something that 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 feels like what I used to do with these guys in, in this mm. kind of thing, and and then you just lay it down. One song which I haven't had the chance to hear from your arrangements. Once I had a sweetheart, which is <laughs> a huge favourite of mine. I always love like the 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 pentangle version, how it starts off very quiet and the dynamics build up and the sitar yeah. comes in and it sounds like the, the Indian drums they were so far ahead of their time as they oh, were, easily uh, easily it had a glockenspiel as well didn't it so i'd love to know even without having heard it how did you end up approaching doing once i had a sweetheart that was i actually felt kind of like how do you call it like a shuffle sort of thing <laughs> 
Once I had a sweetheart, and now I... So I felt a kind of like, yeah, shuffle underneath okay. it. So it's like kind of swinging a bit, you know? That's swinging would be very different to what the original one was, but I'm... Exactly, I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm so happy to hear. I mean, the, the, the Pentangle album, we both agree, is perfect. So the best yeah. way to approach this is don't try to copy it. You do your own thing, and it sounds like exactly. you've, really, you've really been doing that. So Most definitely, yeah, most definitely. The older tunes were even more... I just got into it even even more quicker. Mm. It didn't take too long to get the really older tunes. Because like, once I had a sweetheart, I mean, apparently that's kind of like 15th century-based right. yep. um, traditional tune. Uh, Lightweight Dirge, I think, is also like 16th or 15th century. It's the originals of theirs that took me a little, a little bit longer, mm. actually. Um, and plus, some of the originals got a bit more detail in there. Well, Springtime Promises and Sally Go Around the Roses, which was... An old girl group cover. Yeah, uh, exactly. They, yeah, yeah. Those are the swinging tracks that are the ones that, that I got to hear. And they just sound like you're having so much fun with it. player because he's really really cool on those <laughs> there's two guitarists okay so i had one guitarist on the electric and one on acoustic so phil dawson was on electric guitar mm-hmm. and john paracelli was on acoustic guitar so i think springtime promises it might have been phil on electric guitar yeah he proper rocks out on that one. Oh, really he, he gives it some <laughs> so i'm just recalling it in my head it's um <laughs> you'd be surprised the phil behind that is actually drum and bass Huh. Is actually a drum and bass um, marrying the R and B, the original rhythm and blues feel. That was to give it, make it even more incisive. Give it, it was just infusing a bit, even more bite into it. And so the feel was a drum and bass feel. Mm. Like you said, yeah, we really swing on that. What was the other tune? Sally go around the roses. 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 Sally go around the pretty roses. Roses they can hurt you. Roses they can hurt you. Roses they can hurt you. Oh, the roses they can't hurt you. That's a bit more faithful to the original, you could say. Yes. It's all there, basically, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I did use, I did listen to the girl band uh, original the version. Yeah, the Genets. Yeah, I did listen to them quite a bit as well. I think our version, if anything, has got a bit of that kind of like hey in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Outcast has got a bit of that vibe yeah. in my version, you could say. It swings in that kind of manner. Yeah, well, we had real fun performing that. As you probably noticed also, I had to get my vocal cords into action because on the Pentangle albums in um, Bert Janch yes. is doing a lot of singing as well alongside I mean some of the tunes it, it's just him singing or it's him singing main well, I mean, had, lead vocal well he had a career all his own like before Pentangle and after Pentangle most as, definitely as, yeah as a, as a great guitar I was so 
thrilled. I got to see Danny Thompson come out here with Richard Thompson. I got to see Bert Janch perform oh, here like oh, in, a, wow. in a small club, and he was oh. absolutely mesmerizing. That, I mean, everyone sort of sells the fact that he was such an inspiring guitar player, and he was. But absolutely, that voice. There's no voice I know like that. No, I totally agree. Totally agree. I love the way he sings. There's none of this refined stuff or anything like that. It's nice and, <laughs> nice and rough around the edges, you know, yeah. raw, coupled with the way he plays. So you got a lot of good feedback yeah. as a result of that concert for the London Jazz Festival. Yeah, we were really pleased with the feedback. It was really great. So we're, we were talking before we started recording this that once this current world unpleasantness is finished, that you can get expanding your pentangle repertoire and maybe doing some more shows with the Pentangle songbook. Yeah, exactly, yes. You know, I'm hoping to branch out a bit more. I'd like to arrange, for instance, some of the songs that are on Sweet Child, yeah. which was um, right yeah, the album that came out just before Basket of Light, I think it was the year before or so. They did a cover of uh, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat by Charles Mingus. Oh, uh, yeah, that's is right. That, is yeah. that one that's been in your repertoire ever? No, not really. I mean, I have performed it, you know, with other bands mm. and Haitian uh, dance, the other Mingus tune. I have performed those with other bands, but um, I haven't in my own bands. But um, yeah, they're fantastic tunes, and the way Danny Thompson plays those, it's pretty incredible. He's definitely trying to fill into Giant's shoes as a fellow bass player. You know, he, Danny Thompson and Charles Mingus, I'm sure, <laughs> in awe of Mingus. But uh, Danny Thompson is certainly one of the truly great bass players Absolutely, of the yeah. last 50, 60 years. Amazing player. Yeah, and incredibly um, versatile also, because uh, isn't that? album with him and the core player as well wasn't there I mean that's an incredible album but I've heard him playing some stuff that's totally different from painting so yeah very versatile on that note thank you so much <laughs> oh, thank your, you your time Roland really really appreciate you digging into your memories and <laughs> about all these influences it, it's just been an absolute pleasure thank you so much this has been terrific thanks a lot I really enjoyed this yeah it was great alright we'll be back in a moment you're listening to episode 134 of Love That Album. And we're back. Morris here, Shane there. And uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Roland. I will put some links in the show notes so in case you want to listen to his music or in case you want to buy some stuff off of him these are trying times for musicians so if he's got some stuff that you can download for sale or some physical media then please go ahead and do it and uh, listen to and encourage the musicians out there so speaking of encouraging the musicians out there do you have a band camp page that the listeners can go and get your stuff off mr pacey the cigar stuff is pretty well available across the platforms i think my cell album is available on Bandcamp and mm-hmm. spotify and all of those platforms my trio stuff i think you can download that from our website i'm pretty accessible really as far as that kind of thing goes if you follow me on facebook i'll give you a song every friday that will that will be everywhere from fairly competently performed <laughs> what the hell is he doing but i don't think there'll be many if any of those i try to do something different every week I did a, an old ukulele song from the 30s like a few weeks back, which <laughs> I don't know what compelled me to do that. I think I just wanted to cheer people up a little bit or cheer myself up. I'm not sure. but um, it, it cheered us all up. We loved it. <laughs> 
And yesterday, <laughs> yesterday you did want to see the bright lights tonight, which yeah. was actually the second time someone had gone and posted a link to a cover version of that song on the same day. So right. it must have been Richard Thompson Day. I've always loved that song. Yeah, I, oh. I first heard uh, Julie Covington sing that. Uh, she was a. She, oh, I don't wow. know, she used to. I don't know if you know who she is. She used to be. I, she I was. In show, yeah, she, she was in the show, a program called Rock Follies, which wasn't very good, but she was great. And yeah, that's the first time I heard that song. I hadn't got that album by then, but I got it a bit later, and it's still one of my favourites. And that song's just. You can't hear that song even if it's done by me and not have yourself cheered up a little bit. Well, that's the thing. I mean, when I went and shared a link to your video of the song, I said it's ironic that that song comes from an album with songs like oh, yeah. <laughs> Withered and Died and The End of the Rainbow. You know, it's, it's generally like a miserable album. I mean, mm-hmm. Richard Thompson, known at that time as the king of misery, and yet this is one of the most wonderful, optimistic songs. I, look, one of my old bands, The Shambles, I convinced my bandmates that we needed to not only do this song, but we were going to do the third verse, a cappella, three-part harmony, <laughs> and it worked a treat. Most of the time, people in the audience didn't give a shit about us, but when we did that song and we did that three-part harmony in the middle, people stopped and paid attention. So yeah. thank you, Richard Thompson. You're making mm-hmm. anyone sound good <laughs> well you know that you, i mean you mentioned end of the rainbow that's uh, for my money that's one of the grimmest songs ever written i think it's oh it is i heard an elvis costello cover version he's known for saying this is one of the most miserable songs and i love it yeah uh, misanthropic yeah but it's done it's just the art that it, these things have got to be done with art otherwise they're just yep. somebody being miserable i mean yeah you imagine somebody saying that to a child you know <laughs> <laughs> jesus <laughs> there's no hope for you just you know, here you are on the planet i've brought under the planet but just give up you've got, you've got no hope whatsoever i've got this vision of richard thompson pissing himself when he when he wrote that i, I don't know why i'd like to imagine that neil from the young ones would have done a cover version <laughs> it would have suited him so perfectly so yeah i will put links to anywhere that people can listen to your music and possibly buy your music as they should just fingers crossed that this weird time comes to an end sooner than later yeah and we can go out and listen to you play live i'd really Really look forward to that and yeah down, down here down the, with the virus the, <laughs> yeah, boo virus boo. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or at the very least they declare it safe enough for small groups of musicians to get together in their homes or in their studios and do some streaming shows for us because we'd love to see the cigars of the shane pacey trio perform live for us we just need a few more months of common sense and people not being too silly i think we'll be okay this planet is loaded with people with common sense so <laughs> It's, it's it's a shoe thing very very short um, I want to talk briefly about Love That Album episode 135 that'll be out next month and I've got two people one's a return guest the other one has been on my other podcast see here but this is his first time on Love That Album so I'm welcoming back two film and music writers both published authors and both wonderful blog writers uh, I'm talking about the wonderful magnificent beautiful Heather Drain is coming back uh, she released a few months ago a great book called The Bizarro Encyclopedia of Film where she writes about cult film like nobody's business but you should also go to the Diabolique website and just read what it is that she's written a magnificent writer and she's also a huge fan of the tubes she's been on the podcast a couple of times talking about the tubes and the kinks and I'm sure or something else but she's so boisterous and knowledgeable and everything so just i'm excited to have her back 
But the other guy who's coming on the show next month is the great Mike McPadden. Mike McBeard or McPadden, uh, who's the author of a couple of great books, Heavy Metal Movies and Teen Movie Hell. A great writer, and he just goes down the path of films that you just may not know about. Has a wonderful look at films that you may know about, but in a different light. And just follow him on Facebook. Just He takes no prisoners, but is always fascinating reading. He came on to uh, see here to talk about... Oh, I forgot what the name of the film was, but it was a, a Scandinavian heavy metal film. And uh, we had a lot of fun with that. The two of them are coming. You're probably thinking, well, shut up and tell us what they're going to talk about. Okay, so next month, Mike had suggested that we talk about an album from 1982 by the Californian band Sparks. The album is Angst in My Pants. I'm looking forward to talking about Heather and Mike with some Sparks talk. And there's going to be a lot of laughs to be had because the brothers male always wrote with their tongues firmly planted in their cheeks. So I'm sure will be a lot of uh, Frank Zappa stories to be had on that show. Sparks, angst in my pants, coming next month. If you want to listen to the podcast in different ways or you want to join the, the podcast Facebook group, then just go back and listen to what Joanne had to say at the start of the show. All the details there. And you should also pay attention to the Pantheon podcast network where there's over 35 podcasts there people talking about music and really just search out some of those shows they're fantastic all right i think that pretty much covers it thanks once again shane for being part of this complete pleasure as always morris so uh, until next month please be nice to each other don't get too close to each other unless you've already both got the same germs and, and just really listen to a lot of music by music you know keep the musicians in the manner to which they are accustomed and but just reach out and send a message to someone who you love or someone who you haven't seen in, in a while that is deserving of your love it's really really important and even if you're listening to this five years after the unnamed disease has been and gone still reach out to someone that you love because it's just the wonderful thing to do okay until next month all the best cheers My name is Damone Carter, a.k.a. Dem One. And I'm Nate LeBlanc. And we are two-thirds of the crew that hosts the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Our third co-host is internationally acclaimed hip-hop writer David Ma. As the name of the show suggests, Dad Bod Rap Pod is a podcast where men of a certain age discuss, debate, and dissect rap music. While we are somewhat classicist in our tastes and grew up listening to hip-hop from the 80s until now, we are also interested in the music's present and future. Over the past 115 episodes, we have interviewed rap legends like Prince Paul, Del the Funky Homo Sapien, Roxanne Shante, Cool Keith, DJ Premier, and even the proto-rap group The Last Poets, just to name a few. We also make it a point to talk to writers, commentators, and creatives shaping the genre. We've interviewed journalists and best-selling authors like Nathaniel Friedman, Jeff Weiss, Hanif Abdul-Rakib, and Adam Mansbach. And as Nate mentioned, even though we are products of the 80s, 90s, we take time out to talk to some of the most important voices in rap today, Groups and individuals like Little Brother, 
Open Mike Eagle, Billy Woods, and Rap Ferrer. If you don't recognize any of those names, that's okay, because what we love most on this podcast is to introduce old school fans of rap music to new music that we know you will love. New episodes every week on Thursday. We are the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Want your business to have the best opportunity for success? Take a tip from tech industry leader Intel when you move or expand in Ohio. The new Silicon Heartland is the place forward-thinking business leaders find ample talent, a highly ranked business climate, convenient central location, plus an especially low-risk environment for site selection. Where else can you have all the room you need to grow while rubbing elbows with the giants in your industry? Visit successinohio.com today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 